0: You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows, like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com.
1: And now, our feature presentation. Welcome to the exciting world of the movies.
0: Hello, retro movie lovers, and welcome back to the Movie Graveyard. We got another real special here for you tonight. Another great topic uh, brought up by our longtime uh, fellow movie grave digger, Trev. Trev, how you doing? Welcome back to the show, man.
1: Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me back. I'm I'm happy to be back, and I'm excited that you uh, took me up on this offer for this episode. I have to say, uh, we've, you and I have done a lot of uh, pretty cool topics, some good movies. This might be the one I've been looking forward to the most uh, ever since I kind of first thought of this idea. Um, I've been really excited to to dive into this.
0: I know, like uh, we've probably been like this has kind of been like on the drawing board, so to speak, for at least six months. And we had other mm-hmm. ones that we worked through, and this was like kind of like the last one to get through. And uh, it's kind of worth the wait for me because uh, it was nice to you know step back into these films, and revisit this, and uh, we are talking about the great screen queens of the uh, well, really all through the eighties, but uh, I'd, I'd say they definitely hit their heyday in the late eighties. When you say, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, this trilogy of Scream Queens we're talking about today. Like, uh, I think I would say probably around 85, 86 is when people started to really pay attention to them. And I'd say they run up into about the mid 90s, right? When you say that basically their decade is 85 to 95, I'd say.
0: Yeah, because, you know, uh, we'll get to it later. But like when we watch that doc, oh, somebody just had a terrible fall. You okay, Trev?
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: (laughs) That was scary sounding. (laughs) I, all, all of a sudden, I thought I was in one of those uh, Blumhouse uh, Skype <laughs> things. You know, like yeah. when it's like four groups of or four friends on a call, and they get start, Jason,
1: get, get Jason Blum on the phone. We can sell this. We can. <laughs> we
0: can. They start getting picked off one by one.
1: Two horror fans talking about Scream Queens on online. Yeah. When suddenly,
0: yeah. So we obviously we're talking about the great Michelle Bauer, the great Linnea Quigley, and the great Brink Stevens. But I I agree with you. If you look at either the IMDb. Or just, like, you look at, like, the documentary that we watched, it like, like when they showed, like, the little clips in the documentary, like, you can tell the kind of quote-unquote good movies they're in. Mm-hmm. It seemed like they really kind of, you know, died off around 95-ish, and then the, the ones that they're in after that were, like, very much the, the less polished uh, home video, like, homemade-looking films, you know what I
1: mean? Yeah. So, I guess I wanted to start by asking you, Go, and then I can talk about it briefly, but... Um when do you remember like were you aware of all three of them as a kid like growing up in this era like was there one that was your favorite even back then or I mean were you clocking this as like an idea of these these three scream queens
0: yeah it's it's kind of not really like I knew scream queen like the concept existed because Linnea Quigley was pretty much like Linnea Linnea Quigley was the one I was the most familiar with and Mm -hmm. I say for me like it came through a combination of uh, the the magazines I used to read Fangoria. Right. Um, I had a handful of famous monsters, of Filmlands, like the kind of like weird run that they had in the eighties. And I remember in those, like I'd say pretty much my awareness didn't start until Return of the Living Dead. And yeah. uh, I, I I I would say probably my next big dose of Lenny Quigley came with like a few years later with the with Night of the Demons. And then like around I would say Night of the Demons on. She was very much uh, because I was like a monthly Fangoria reader, and she was always popping up in that. Like they were always covering her projects, her movies, as well as like she would like kind of pop up in things that were about Steve Johnson, who she was married to at the time. And and Brink Stevens for the longest time, I knew the name, and uh, I didn't really see her films, and it it wasn't really I would say, really till the nineties. And even, like, the early 2000s when I was working at a video store, like, when I was working at a video store between 2002 and 2004, the Linnea Quigley, like, they were like the, the crappy low-budget ones, but the Linnea Quigley and Brink-Stevens movies were coming in non-stop, like, like mm-hmm. literally non-stop still. And, uh, yeah, the one that was, like, totally missed, like, my radar completely was uh, Michelle Bauer, and it's like, I can't believe because she's so awesome, like, it wasn't until... Maybe six months ago, when I watched uh, for the first time ever "Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Ballarama," and like it was one of those things where like I don't know what was up. I like I wasn't on the radar as much as you think I would because like the the mom and pops uh, video stores that were in walking distance of my house, like they didn't be like it was literally because they were small places. They didn't have like the giant like exploitation. You know, they would have a few, but like yeah, like the screen queens weren't really lining the shelves. You know, in the the Podunk town in Indiana, I grew up in. So, mm-hmm. so I, I like I always knew about it kind of like through cable, and like sorority babes, I knew about uh, believe it or not from um, going to my uncle's house, and uh, we would watch like the previews for pay per view, and I remember the the preview for sli- uh, sorority babes, slimeball ballarama was on nonstop on the previews for like maybe a year, but I never saw the movie because I never actually like saw it on the shelf at the video store so like i would i would say like as much as i was all about the genre even as a kid and going to see movies theatrically and even seeing some obscure ones theatrically and also in video yeah man i just i i got a bum deal dude i didn't have any video stores that were really stocking these near me
1: I mean, your story is kind of similar to mine, although I did have like, right. I think I've told the story on this show before, but and we should really actually talk about the video store thing just for a little bit here because they represent such a, like that era, right? And like how much the scream queen thing is tied into the rise of video stores and vice versa. But uh, just like you, Linnea Quigley was definitely the first one I clocked when I was younger, just because, like you said, she was the one getting the press, right? So if you were young and getting into horror fan uh, horror films you were seeing her get covered a lot in in all those those magazines you talked about. And just like you, I definitely knew the name Brink-Stevens and I guess I knew she was a scream queen because she also got a little bit of mainstream attention. You know, you'd see her pop up on talk shows and they would, and like on things like, like E and stuff like that. And they would talk about her being like the, one of the big scream queens, but I don't know that I was seeing a lot of her movies and, and exactly like you too. I don't, I don't think I had any concept of or any knowledge of Michelle Bauer. I, I definitely saw some movies she was in, but I didn't know that name or know like who she was until much later when in that like post 2000, really big initial DVD boom when I finally started to go back to this stuff and catch up in on a, a retro way and then realizing, like, Oh, okay. So that's who that one is, you know? Um, but I also remember, like, cause you were, you were mentioning some of those magazines. And you mentioned like Fangory and stuff. And I, I, I think the two other ones that are important to, to mention are Cine Fantastique. And then I believe, which was its sister publication, was actually a magazine called Scream Queens. And I remember seeing that in stores all the time, looking at that. And that's where I think I even first heard that term and started to think of that as a concept and as an idea when I was younger. And and then to that, like in my head, the two big scream queens were Linnea Quigley and Julie Strain, because I feel like Julie Strain yeah. was on every other cover of that magazine. But then as they they actually made this point in the in the documentary we'll mention later, if you look at Julie Strain's filmography, she's really not much of a scream queen. It was very easy to put on the covers of all those magazines, but she wasn't doing mostly horror. She was actually doing more sci-fi and kind of like the Andy Sidaris type uh, action thrillers, whereas the three we're talking about really heavily dealt in in horror. And then I remember being young, I don't know if you had this experience, go because you were just saying that your video stores didn't get these movies. Mine did, and I, I had... Um, this is a story I feel like I probably told, but the cool little indie video store that was right down the road from my house, I could walk to it in about like eight minutes or so. And as a latchkey kid, as I believe many 80s kids were... Um, you know, I would go there like almost every day after school and just rent videos. And my mom did the cool thing where she put a note on our account that said I could rent R-rated movies, even though I was way too young. And I started like working my way through all the horror stuff. And I was really trying to catch up on more of like the really gory, crazy Italian horror and stuff that it felt like, Ooh, I shouldn't be watching these. And some of the stuff that was like more cheesy and B, I think that was stuff I started to appreciate more later. But, um, sorority babes and the slime bowl ballorama for a long time, I thought it was like an outer space movie. Something about that name <laughs> yeah. and like the cover, and like there's that the cover is that like that painting of Linnea Quigley in, in her outfit, but there's something about the painting where it looks like a little bit more like. I don't know, kind of futuristic or something. And I think, and then she's got like the, the imp hand behind her, but I thought it was like an alien hand. And I just always had this assumption maybe it was because there were so many other movies like that at the time, like Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity and all those other B movies with, like, you know, girls in space. I just thought like the slime ball ballerama must be some like intergalactic bowling tournament or something. And that's what I think I always thought it was until, like you, I, I caught up with that movie like much later.
0: Yeah, and, like, uh unfortunately, like, when we moved, when I was, like, 11, I had a cable blind spot, so, like, we lived in the city, so I think we had cable from about the time, from, like, around 82 or 83 to, like, 88 when we moved, and mm-hmm. then... um yeah from 88 all the way till 96 because where we lived there was no there was like literally no cable company at all and then there mm-hmm. was the cable company that came a couple years later wasn't very good so we never got it and our neighbors had a lot of problems with it like always losing the signal and shit and it wasn't until actually direct became like more affordable and i remember 96 we got a satellite dish and like i kind of got caught up on some stuff um mm-hmm. i more the like uh i don't know what you would call them exactly like like they on the Movie channels there, they were airing this shit late night, but it really wasn't, like, the air of that, like, Brink and Linnea were in. It was more, like, the shit that came later. Like, the, the, yeah. sh- the shot on, like, SVHS movies and stuff is what they were showing late night at that point.
1: Yeah, see, this is the big difference between us then, because I always had cable, like, from a kid, like, going... You know, we just always had cable in our house, and I definitely... I was very informed at a young age from um, every weekend watching Monster Vision and USA Up All Night. And that's really where I think my, you know, infatuation and love with these actresses and like this whole kind of movie started to come from because it was watching that show, those shows every weekend. And I remember, you know, like USA Up All Night was, was on Friday and Saturday nights. The Friday version was the, um, you know, Rhonda Sheer version. I think it was run this year on Fridays and Gilbert Gottfried on Saturdays. Yeah. And then on Saturdays it was great. Cause you could, you could flip back and forth between up all night and monster vision. You could just kill back and forth. And sometimes it'd be like, you'd just be trying to catch the host segments, not even the movies. Um, but I saw so many of these movies back then. That's why I said, like, I was definitely seeing stuff with Michelle Bauer and Brink Stevens and just not even realizing it. Cause I was watching some yeah. of these movies, but I was watching obviously the edited versions. Um, but that yeah. speaks to this era too, because they made a really good point in that documentary. I think it was the screenwriter, Ken Hall, who said it where, there's something about these movies and, and the movies that these three were making and these kind of this this era why it why people like us are so nostalgic for it is that these cheap exploitation movies which were clearly made to show off a lot of like you know nudity and just crazy gore they were still they were well enough made and fun enough that even if you cut that stuff out the movies were still entertaining to watch on regular cable and uh and that speaks to i think these filmmakers and then then like how energetic and fun the performances are and that's what was really missing from like the later stuff i think that follows in the 2000s where you can't you can't edit down some of the the crap we get now and and still have it be entertaining (laughs) the same way
0: I, i i agree too and it's just like um like you know i was never you know it's not like i ever uh you know, look down on these movies when I was younger. Like I kind of knew they exist, but I didn't go out of my way to seek them out or they mm-hmm. weren't, they weren't like super available to me anyway, like I was saying. So, but like, I never really felt like I was missing out. Cause like for the longest time I thought, I thought sorority Babes* was actually a trauma film. Cause like the, the mm-hmm. advertisements they had, the old previews they had on pay-per-view, uh, like, yeah, like, it looked like that. And, like, I was real familiar from before my whole cable blackout era. Like, I caught a big dose, actually, of trauma in the early to mid-80s. Like, mm-hmm. Toxic Avenger and all that shit. So, it's, like, I knew those movies as a kid. And, I like, I probably watched, like, no shitty. I probably watched Toxic Avenger, like, 10 or 12 times. But it was kind of just, like like, in my head, like, you know, like, they were, like, a lower whatever form. Like, just in terms of, like... You know they weren't gonna blow you away, you know, as a kid, yeah. and like, and like I gotta say, like, you know, like I'm, uh, like I'm kind of eager now to go back and see what I can track down through like Netflix, DVD, and all that kind of stuff, or just pick up copies as these things get re released by things like Vinegar Syndrome and stuff. But like I'm kind of like into it more right now, believe it or not, than I was at any other point. Because like before. You know, the era that these movies were made in, like, yeah, these movies are cool and, like, they were fun to watch on cable or whatever, random or whatever, but, like, they weren't, like, something I was going to actively go out of my way. And, like, now I am more drawn to it because there's really nothing else out there that's like it. Like, I feel like right now these, these movies feel a lot more unique than they even did back then, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, and and then I remember Troma used to – I feel like Troma had some kind of deal with Cinemax when I was growing up because I feel like that's where I saw a lot of Troma stuff and they would do like Troma Nights and I remember like having Lloyd Kaufman actually be on Cinemax introducing the films. But um, at least – I mean that's a memory I have. You know how your memories get like mutilated over time but I feel like that's such a case. But this is again where you were kind of missing out because I think um, what I mentioned earlier about like the rise of the video stores and this is true of Cable as well. The reason these movies – and and these actresses became such a big deal and would get TV coverage. And you know, you'd have Brink Stevenson Quigley being featured on news shows as like the queen of the queens of the bees, right? Is because and people need to remember, like maybe our younger listeners who didn't get to experience this, in the eighties and well no just basically the early eighties and going into late eighties, both video stores and cable movie channels were brand new. And at this point, like most of the big studios weren't putting their big catalog titles on cable or in video stores because they were both like kind of untested markets. And these companies just had to like fill these things up however they could. So the video stores, their shelves are just full of like B-movies. And then I remember the days when HBO and Cinemax was mostly like crap like this. You know, you get like the big Hollywood movie that would come on every night at like 8 o'clock. And then during the day, it was all like cheap exploitation B-movie stuff because that's just what was available to them. And so that's something that's kind of missing today, too, where there was just, um, you know, everybody who was watching movies was way more exposed to trauma and full moon and all this stuff because that's just what we were seeing. And And that's why people of our generation are obsessed with movies like The Last Dragon and Big Trouble in Little China and break-in because these movies were just on constantly on cable
0: and like that's a great point too because like e- even though they never had the budgets or the you know the the advertising support that like uh, even like a minor studio release we get they had that thing of like they were plugging a hole at a time where like they did have equal exposure like mm-hmm. on these channels so it's like you know uh, and then also too the the different movie channels had different agreements so like I'd say pretty early on, like, movie channels exploded. Like, I don't really, really remember, like, I think maybe HBO might have been the first, or maybe mm-hmm. something else, but I remember, like, pretty early on, there was already HBO, Cinemax, Showtime, and the movie channel, and the way, like, even though some of them are, like, kind of owned by the same companies now, I don't know if they were them, but, like, they would kind of have to split the, the distribution up, so it's like, for example, like, you couldn't have, like, the same movie playing on two or three of the movie right. channels the same one, so they kind of had to, like, cycle through and take terms. And, like, I don't remember, I mean, this is too far back, I don't remember, like, the exact studios that would, like, go to this channel or that channel, but it's like, yeah, so it's like, there's a good chance probably a lot of these ones that we're talking about were always on cable. They probably were on, like, HBO for a long run, and then Cinemax for a long run, and then later, like,
1: another one, you know what I mean? So it's like... It, well, it it's d- funny, because even beyond, like, the studios having to deals with them, I feel like... I remember each movie channel kind of having its own singular identity a little bit too. Right? right. Like HBO was definitely the more mainstream one, but also I think I always thought of HBO had mostly comedy, right. Uh, during, especially during the day they'd show like a lot of comedies and a lot of those would be like B level comedies. I remember something like, um, you know, like up the Creek would be on HBO, like yeah. all the time, you know? Yeah. And then Cinemax of course always had more sci-fi. And then at night we all know it was Cinemax. Like that's just where you got all your, your soft stuff that was very important for us growing up because we didn't have the internet. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Showtime I felt like had, like, m- uh, more horror than, like, the other ones. And I then the movie ch- – or maybe Showtime was, like, more drama and maybe Movie Channel was more horror because Movie Channel had Joe Bob's original show. Um Yeah. But yeah, I just felt like I remember definitely a time where you you felt like you kind of knew what you were getting every time you flipped to a different movie channel.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of funny you mentioned Joe Bob because like I don't know if this was just my perception, but I always felt like Movie Channel had uh, the Movie Channel had like the reputation of really being like the third or fourth run one, and it mm-hmm. wasn't until Joe Bob kind of like gave them the identity to where like people were like actively choosing the Movie Channel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, but I mean, it is a fun time and it's kind of like just the way you laid that out there is, uh, it kind of reminds me of the, you know, it didn't last very long, but the early days of streaming when Netflix was just catching on and how it was like such a hodgepodge of stuff that was on there and like, like how the video story era and the, in the, the movie channel era kind of created these like cult hits. Like I remember the early days of streaming was like less on the cult stuff, but more on just the old stuff that people had in seen like i remember like a weird thing was like adam 12 was like one of the main things like <laughs> you could stream on netflix you know what i mean like mm-hmm. so like yeah like i think it definitely was uh you know and they talk about it in, the, in the in the documentary too is the the switch over from drive-ins to video stories like it definitely was like you know these type of films were at the right place at the right time
1: yeah, and it was such a, just a glorious era, right? I mean, we're not saying anything that hasn't been talked about in three hundred different horror documentaries and yeah. articles, you know, over the last few years now. But I mean, that the fun of going to a video store, like for me, it was a, like I said, a, a daily or almost like every other day kind of experience. But I, I think everyone at least went on the weekends and just that experience yeah. of walking through the aisles, and especially this era, right, when it was mostly weird stuff you'd never heard of. And just the fun of these movies and the crazy box covers and just getting sucked in by strange titles and premises and, and, you know, in a hot chick on the front or whatever. Um, and just that, that level of like discovery. Right. And then you take that home and you had to watch it. It's not, this isn't the Netflix thing where you watch five minutes and go like, nah, no, I'll move on to the next thing. This is, this was your movie for the night. So you would sit through the whole thing. And that was good too. Cause I think it forced, and I shouldn't say forced, but you would discover more stuff that I think you might give up on nowadays.
0: For sure, like like I can only imagine how great it was too for like the high school and college crowd because like I remember like when I was uh, in college like this was when the video store had reached its peak and was completely mainstream but like we would go with a couple buddies and pick out like three films usually two to three mm-hmm. and um, like you would just look for the weirdest shit you could get like I remember a group of five or six guys sitting down probably at like I don't know, probably like eleven thirty midnight on the weekend and like we were trying to watch Shakes the Clown. <laughs> and like it seemed it seemed like about half of us were into it and the other half kinda just like, you know, okay, like halfway through, like I gotta go. I'm gonna go home, whatever, you know what I mean? And like I couldn't only imagine how fun it would have been to do that with a group of guys that age like back in the day you know 10 12 years earlier where you could like just go and load up on these type of movies i think i think it'd be even more fun you know
1: yeah it was great did you ever did you ever hook up the two vcrs and try to and like dub videos that you rented from a store
0: you know actually believe it or not never did that We, we did the thing where we kind of built up a library in the 80s of just taping stuff on like hbo or whatever Mm-hmm. Like we did that, but no, I never, never really caught on to the two VCR. Th- well, first of all, we actually never had two VCRs, believe it or not, yeah. until like probably I want to say the first like two VCR setup I had was probably uh, when I got a VCR for my room, like, oh geez, probably late 90s, a couple years before DVD came out and I would kind of, like, I guess start out making like music videos out of clips from stuff I had on tape. And then like I would kind of edit them together, and then I would like run it through again, and then like run. R- I hooked up a, a PlayStation One and played a CD, and I would like make my own music videos. And then later, I used the two VCR method to edit together real crudely this cable access show that me and my buddy did for about a year. But yeah, I never did the copy and films thing. Uh, did you ever well, run into the like the yeah, copy that, protection shit? Like,
1: yeah, you would there, you would find something you couldn't do, right? But that but that, that is my memory of having a VCR in my room, and I and I still remember the days. of... Of, you know um you know i'd go rent a movie and then later that night when no one was using the tv downstairs taking the vcr from my room downstairs hooking it up and like dubbing the tapes and all that stuff that like nobody knows what we're talking about anymore right like i'm going, yeah. going and buying the blank tapes and getting the ones that you know in in ep or nine hours but an sp or only three hours and having yeah. to decide do you want the better quality or do you want the more stuff on the tape? Yeah, and so I remember. Um, you know, when I was this you as a fellow, uh, you know, you I don't really watch wrestling anymore. I know you still do, but we all grew up with wrestling, yeah. And especially, I remember getting those like nine hour ones and being like, hmm, I can either put one pay per view on this that looks really good. Or I can have three pay-per-views on this, but it looked like shit (laughs) to kind of like make that decision, you know?
0: Yeah. And I have to say, like, we would do that uh, most of all because my dad worked uh, third shift. And obviously this is way before the days of DVR. So, like, we always had our shit in long played mode because he would, like, Mm -hmm. set set the VCR timer to record a bunch of different things, um, you know, overnight while he was at work. So he had something to watch, you know, when he came home. And uh, so, like, our shit was always in the long played mode. And it's like, yeah, it, like, it wasn't until years later when I, like, kind of started, like, looking back, like, digging out some old tapes that we had, like, recorded some old movies, I'm like, yeah, this looks really shitty, like, <laughs> you know what I mean, like... Yep. Yeah, it's funny, and the the worst was when I I started collecting movies. Like probably oh I don't know eh, around ninety five ninety six ish, you know. Like I got like the first three Freddy Krueger movies and stuff, and like they were like those budget really. Like I thought it was awesome because I could go to Kmart and buy a Nightmare on Elm Street for eight ninety nine on VHS. But then when you got it home and watched it, it was that thing where like they basically recorded them in like whatever long played mode just so they could use less tape. And yeah,
1: like they look terrible. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess, I guess the last thing we should talk about before diving into the individual movies is just the idea of a scream queen. Um, this is again, something that's been talked about a lot recently, but, I guess we could talk about this in, in like an overall sense and then more specific to this era. But I mean, where do you fall in the concept? Cause I know it's a surprisingly controversial term nowadays, like more yeah. so than I ever expected it to be. Um, you have, Barbara Crampton, who I love and who in recent years has really kind of become like the queen of horror again, even a bigger way than she ever was before. She's really, stepped in, she's really stepped into that role. And I love it that she's so she's such a positive force for the genre. She's like on Twitter all day, every day, um, tweeting about like new filmmakers and new things she's watched on Shudder. And she's just so positive and, and such a great force. But I know that she penned this editorial piece talking about how she hates the term scream queen and, and thinks it should be taken away. And then you have other actresses, you know, like your your Tiffany Shepses and your Felissa Roses who still like the term and have have defended it. Um but like what what are you where do you fall on that? And then the just whole concept in general. Do you have other Scream Queens that we're not gonna talk about today? Like what what's just your overall take on it?
0: Yeah, it's it's really weird because I guess I grew up with like a more skewered view of it. So like whenever I heard the term, I took it literal. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I thought it was like literally like I would always hear it in the context of like Janet Lee, Jamie Lee Curtis. I thought it was yeah. I thought it was literally the actresses that did a lot of horror that were literally known for screaming, mm-hmm. and um, you know, because everybody, you know, they all have their kind of s- s- signature trademark scream. Like I think Jamie Lee Curtis might have the most signature, like, distinctive one out of every- anybody. Like it's kind of weird. Like I can always tell her scream other everybody else. But yeah, it wasn't until like the Fangoria era like the late 80s where they were doing a lot of Linnea Quigley coverage when it was always like they always you know phrase her screen queen Linnea Quigley and blah 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 blah. and it's just like I kind of knew that like the way it was being used later was kind of like a different term and I know they claim like they they pin like kind of pin that term for them but like yeah so like I'm not as like hotly debated about it it's just like to me, you're not a real screen queen unless you've done, like, a good run of, like, horror movies that people actually know and stuff. Like, I know there's, like, a lot of, like, girls that are more basically models and they try to say screams But to me, it's, like, either you got the filmography to back that 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 name up or you don't, you know.
1: Yeah, that's kind of how I look at it now, too. I, I think it is a title still worth using, but I think it's one that sh- there should be, like, some kind of level of pride to it. I, I know Crampton's point, which is- True, when they talk about this in the documentary too, about how it can become a little bit of an albatross around their neck. Yeah. And you can be viewed by the industry in a negative way if it's, oh, you just do those horror movies. But I think that's what separates this. And just like you, I think when I was younger, I just assumed like, well, any girl who's in a, a horror movie or two is like a scream queen, right? And now I kind of look at it more in this the regard of it is people like Quigley and Stevens and Bauer and Sheppis and and Rose, right? The, the ones who seem to love working in this genre and they can even be like above the title names, um, you know, I, and that's not to take anything away, but like. Like, Marilyn Burns would be an example, right? I love Marilyn Burns in Text right. Chance Massacre, and she did a couple other things, but I wouldn't call her a scream queen, right? Because right. she did, what, one or two horror movies, and then that was kind of it, you know? So, I think the people who stick around and seem very into the genre and are, and are like, the star attractions, that's who I think that title deserves to be on.
0: Yeah, like, I think is is definitely a term that's been bastardized, much in the same way porn star has been bastardized. Because, like, mm-hmm. when I was a kid and, like, you would, like, read articles about whatever... um, mainly about Deep Throat. I always heard about Deep Throat when I was a kid for some reason, I think because it was like the highest grossing whatever. And you would hear, hear like porn star Linda Lovelace, porn star John Holmes. And so like, like it's like, well, you're either a star or you're not. And it's like, then it became like literally anybody in their first porno movie was a porn star. You know what I mean? Right. It's yep. kind of that mm-hmm. type of thing. It's like, yeah, it's a meaningless title. But like, yeah, like when the three women we're talking about today, Linnea, Brink, and... um. Michelle, like, yeah, like I think when they, you know, and it's not to say that nobody else is a screen queen because there's obviously other ones. Like I always knew mm-hmm. about Debbie Rochon, and mm-hmm. obviously the more modern day one, or I guess for you know maybe the early two thousands was Tiffany Shepess. But like, yeah, it's just kind of like that thing of like it's it's been way way over overused because I want to say maybe even Diamond Dave. <laughs> His daughter, Avi Lee Roth, tried to pull that, say she was a scream queen. And yeah. then, like, it turned out, like, she really was, like, only in a couple movies that were, like, homemade or whatever. And it's just, like...
1: Yeah, yeah. and I think it's also just kind of... It's kind of gone away just because, I guess, something about the market and the way things are now. I mean, and this isn't just because I'm a huge fan and kind of know her. But I, I think... And I've seen other people say this. I think it's arguable that Tiffany Shepis is kind of, like, the last scream queen. At least of, yeah. like, the breed we're talking about now, right? Because I think... She represents like where her heyday is is kind of the last big gasp of physical media, right? And right. when physical media is not a thing anymore, what's the scream queen now? You don't have any women who are they they're being sold as like the star attractions of these films anymore. I think it, we're back to the heavy focus in horror being the filmmakers and just the concepts and not necessarily the performers. I don't know. Can you think of anybody post her that would like any recent additions that? you consider in that realm
0: not not tiffany shep at all like it like again it's it's going back to like that mainstream like like there's like the mainstream word of the use of the word and like the whatever but uh, not really after tiffany but i would say like the more modern like mainstream one like i think jennifer love hewitt briefly picked up the title of a screen queen in terms of Mm -hmm. mainstream movies but yeah and like I don't know what you would call her. Um, I wouldn't call her a scream queen, but I felt like they tried for marketing purposes. People tried to kind of uh, put Misty Monday as a scream queen, but I don't think she really was. She just was more like Julie Strain where she was like yep. a B-movie queen.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: Uh, but yeah, like like, and I think out of everybody, like really... Like, the only person, and obviously it's because she's kind of the newest one, but I think the only person that's really still around is, like, Tiffany Shepes. And even then, she the work she's doing
1: now is way different than the stuff she was doing in the early 2000s. Yeah, well, and there's other reasons for that, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's in her 40s now, and so Hollywood yeah. is, doesn't have as much usage for
0: her anymore. Which, you know? by the way, like, I almost did a shit post on uh, uh, Facebook the other day. Uh, But I was like, ah, what's the point? I'll just be, you know, whatever. People might take it the wrong way. But, like, apparently the world was shocked this week, uh, Trev, when Liz Hurley on Instagram or somewhere put out a bikini photo. And it just, mm-hmm. like, you know, it shocked the world that she was, like, looking as amazing as she ever, always ever has. And I'm just like... And I'm like, I don't know exactly how old well she is, but I know Liz Hurley's got to at least be in her fifties now. And I'm just like, this is somebody that literally just disappeared overnight out of mainstream Hollywood films, probably like around the time she hit forty. You know what I mean? Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like come on, like enough of it. Like, you know, I'm not saying talent doesn't matter, and I'm not saying that like looks is everything, but like, don't write somebody off because like they they hit a birthday on the calendar and they're too they're no, quote unquote I mean, too it it old. Is. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah, like, I mean, to go back to Crampton is the ultimate example of that, right? Just gone for so long, comes back still gorgeous, right? right? Gorgeous. And then, like, just such, like, a great, uh, you know, the the work she's done since coming back, too. She's one of those ones now Mm -hmm. who, I mean, even though she doesn't like the term, I'd say she's probably the biggest scream queen right now. Because she's, the. I think she's the primary actress that everyone is trying to get in their horror films. And I I do agree. If I'm watching a movie and she shows up, you know, at least you're going to be entertained during her scenes. So. Yeah,
0: like I, like I don't know, like like I would, I would kind of, and I, and I totally get the reasons, but like Barbara Crampton, like I'm going to go actually Screen Queen, and the reason I'm going to go Screen Queen because her role in uh, what was it, The Beyond or whatever, or uh, shit, what's the movie with Ken Foree, the the weird interdimin, from Beyond, from Beyond, yeah, I'm sorry, I always always get the titles mixed up. The Beyond is the Italian one. From Beyond, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm like. Like our girl Barbara, she's rocking some tight leather. Oh yeah. <laughs> like like she's definitely like I would say like like in the the bigger budget Linnea type of role in that movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So
1: No, that's the thing like I mean I, I would say like as it like especially her place in horror right now, she is like the Scream Queen. Yeah. And I say that in the reference of like she seems to be like the queen of all of them, right? She's the one yeah. who I would imagine they all look up to and, you know, respect. And I feel like if you had a convention of all of them, she'd be like the King Arthur role. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you feel like she For should be sure. at the head of the table, essentially.
0: For sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess I guess getting to the movies we're talking about today, one thing we do have, need to set up a little bit, Trev, is like this is like, even though we, I don't think we really planned it out this way, just these were three notable films because it kind of showcased these women. But, the, but ironically, even though these are some like the kind of the all time classics of the genre, they all came out pretty much at the same time in the same year. Oh, isn't that
1: crazy? This is like the yeah. second time it's happened. This is like, I pitched the Lucinda Dickey one yeah. and we we're like, Oh man, all three of those came out like within months of each other. Yeah. And then that happened again with this one. Cause I would agree with like, when you look at these three, even though one of these doesn't have all three of them. Yeah. But still like, I would point to these three probably as if you're talking about them as a trio, I think, I, I think these three movies kind of give you a, like an overall great look at their, like their powers yeah but it is just so fabulous they're all 1988 movies and they all are kind of linked in a way there's actually like kind of a through line uh, even production wise that that goes along with these
0: exactly so the the, fir- the first one we want to talk about is the all-time classic uh and i would say this is probably right like the, i don't know it's a toss-up but i think this might be the most famous out of the three but talking about sorority babes and the slime ball bowl-a-rama.
1: Yeah, I'd say it's a toss up between this one and the next one, but I think I think the title on this one is maybe a little bit more memorable. I don't know. That's a hard that's a hard call, yeah. but mileage may vary. But
0: yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know how in depth we want to go, but I, I guess just the basic framework of this story. And it's very like I like I think in an, like I said like I only saw this movie for the first time about six months ago on Shudder watching Joe Bob, and uh, yeah, like I don't know how this kind of, you know evaded me for so long because it was so it, it checked so many genre checkbox you know for me but it's it's basically uh in this movie like talk about moving along at a at a lightning quick pace like the setup of this movie happened so quickly like basically we were introduced to a sorority who's hazing uh two new uh members who which is michelle bauer which which i guess real quick we ought to say so michelle bauer that was her name when she first got into acting mm-hmm. uh that was actually her husband at the time's name she got a divorce she kept the stage name her husband sued for her to stop using that name Yep. she remarried she remarried somebody uh with the last name of mcclellan so for these i think for yeah the two for two of the three or all three of these she's billed as michelle mcclellan but her overall career is she's known as Michelle Bauer. So I'm just going to refer to her as Michelle Bauer. Yeah.
1: I yeah. think what happened, I mean, she's, she's billed as McClellan in these and that's some other films. But I've read that basically, like, because she had already made the name as Bauer, like, it was just causing too much confusion. Fans weren't taking to it. And so she basically, like, went back to her ex husband and they finally worked something out. Exactly.
0: So basically, the setup of this movie is, like I said, these two girls are getting hazed. The two girls getting hazed are Michelle Bauer and Brink Stevens. And, um, I mean, I guess we can, you know, be honest. Like, this is a pretty exploitative opening yeah. with the kind of semi-nude paddling scene, <laughs> and uh, we're also introduced to to uh, again pure eighties. When you
1: have a group of guys, you always got to have a crew, right? Trev? Oh yeah, and in particular, this kind of crew, right? We got because this yeah. is even going to come up again in this episode. But these aren't these are three nerdy frat guys, uh, exactly, which is weird too. Like the idea that the frat allowed in these three nerds. What do they have? Like a nerd quota they have to fill or something
0: right well yeah it was like are they only like was it just a bad semester and they only got nerds? <laughs> which i gotta say like I, I i can't really like personally identify with like the the um the the nerds of the 80s like you know I, I didn't wear glasses i wasn't like into math i wasn't you know what i mean i wasn't into science or anything so i, I wouldn't specifically say that like i Like, strongly personally identify with the nerds, but there's something about 80s nerds and movies, even from a kid to now, I love, dude. I love nerd characters, and it's always fun to kind of watch them come out of their shells in the course of movies, you know?
1: I think it's that, I think, because I love 80s punks. I think we've talked about that before. Like, 80 movie punks is like my favorite group, and then, but I know you mean about nerds, and then there's something about 80s movies in general, especially in this genre and this realm. Where it's kind of fascinating how they just kind of, there was like these lumped together categories that were in everything. And so you had like the nerds, you had the punks. Um, I think like uh, fitness and aerobic girls is another one um you know like ditzy blondes there's just like Mm -hmm. these general groups that are just so indicative of the 80s and i love them all especially now because it's like i said it's just a nostalgic thing so i'm I'm with you like revenge of the nerds uh you know assault of the party nerds stuff like that i i I love them so the
0: three nerd characters here we have uh rivers cuomo of the band weezer as calvin (laughs) uh no actually like this guy gives, he looks exactly like the guy from Weezer, like exactly, and he even But I, but but I didn't put this together till my second viewing this last week. Trev. Andres Jones, I always knew him from a different '80s movie, which I think came out the same year, which was actually Nightmare on Elm Street Four: The Dream Master. Mm-hmm. And in that one, he has like a pretty distinctive scene where. um He's uh, one of the main characters' brother, and he uh, he does karate. So, like when he goes into his dream world, he's a karate master, and he actually uh, has a karate fight with Freddy. And then, like Freddy turns like invisible for I remember, and he kind of like s- his glove flies through the air and impales yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. So it was a real treat, and I gotta say, like you, like I was shocked when, once I realized it was this same guy. And then also that those movies came out at the same time. And, of course, you know, things like scripts and how quick you're shooting and stuff matter. But, like, yeah, like, I think this guy, like, I think he took a huge step because even though he is playing a nerd character in this movie, he's very timid, which it is a character. But he also, I don't know, like, he seemed very green as an actor. So I'm surprised, like, you know, he was able to go book a, a mainstream movie, like, at the same time. Mm-hmm. But also, probably more recognizable to horror fans, we have the great Hal Havens as uh, Jimmy, who also was in Night of the Demons as like the pig
1: punk rocker guy. Mm-hmm. I believe and I believe it's Linnea Quigley who brought him to this movie because of Night of the Demons. She introduced him to the director, David Dakota.
0: That would make total sense. Yeah. And then the other guy... I want to say John Stewart Wildman is Keith. I didn't know him from anything else, but no. But it it is a good nerd crew because you kind of <laughs> have like the two nerdy guys, and then you have like Hal Havens. He like he's not nearly as much as he was in Neither Demons, but he still plays like uh, in in the old movies with the crew. You always had to have the slob guy in the crew. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he kinda, yeah. He kind of he kind of
1: plays he plays that character. So the three of them, of course, do what, you know, these groups yeah. would always do in an 80s movie. They go and spy on the sorority. And yeah. and they're Beepers. lucky enough to spy on the exact night that this this hazing is happening. So they get to watch Michelle Bauer and Brink-Stevens get, uh, get paddled Paddle. in their underwear.
0: Yeah. And then, like, th- like that's, like, not enough. Like, they got to, like, sneak in and, like, you know, see mm-hmm. what else is going on. And, like, they got to watch the girls shower, and then, like, you know, there's some hijinks. It's very, wouldn't you say, I mean, we got to admit, this is very inspired by uh, Porky's, wouldn't you say?
1: oh yeah i mean it's totally and and don't you don't you miss the days uh, isn't it like so how innocent does it seem with the days when our when our heroes were just <laughs> yeah. spying on women in the show or as if there's nothing wrong with that you know
0: and then like you always know, have the scene where like the girls are momentarily surprised but it was never like traumatizing it was no, like okay. oh silly whatever i mean mm-hmm. every movie from back then had it. not only porkies but private school i mean just every movie had had you know everybody getting a... revenge of the nerds they 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 like that was like some borderline real rape well, shit. In Revenge yeah, Revenge of <laughs>
1: the Nerds takes it a little further, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. But, but you know, we
0: didn't know any better. That's a like,
1: discussion for another time on that one. I
0: yeah. Think. <laughs> so they 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 get busted, and I wanted to like throw a quick shout out, real quick, because I actually I really like uh, Robin Rochelle. I think yeah. her real name was Robin St- uh, Still, but her her stage name, I guess, was Robin Rochelle. She plays Babs, like the main girl, of the celebrity, like the leader. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, like I like I I thought like man, she's really good in this movie. Maybe she like went on to be a screen queen too. But yeah, she wasn't um, nearly successful, and unfortunately passed away a few years after this movie, probably yeah. like seven or eight
1: years later. But um, um, she she throws off like a real Sybil Danning energy. It's, right. Like, she like she looks like Sybil Danning, like that kind of tall, statuesque, uh, badass blonde. And
0: and before it some mind, I want to ask you, Trev, what did you think? Like I thought it was weird because you know the iconic sorority babe slime ball. Bolarama poster i it always confused me because like the the like, there's some background stuff going on but the main girl standing in the front like the face and the body type looks more like robin rochelle babs and she's even holding the paddle behind her back which she was the one in the movie that used the paddle but then the outfit is what linnea is wearing like did you ever yeah, notice I that I, yeah
1: I, it's strange. I don't know if they just couldn't. I mean, I, it's weird to say they couldn't get likeness rights or something, or if they made yeah. the poster first, or whatever. Because then, right. Robin Rochelle is on the poster in the background in her like later costume. Right. Um, so she's kind of like doubled up. It's strange that like. Um, It's Brink that's, like, basically not represented on the cover at all. Right. Um, But, yeah, you're right that it looks... The one who is Linnea Quigley looks nothing like her, and I don't know why she's holding the paddle. Yeah, She should just be holding, like, the crowbar, right? Like, why not the crowbar?
0: Exactly. I I guess because it's like, fuck it, we need to sell this movie. (laughs) Um, Might as well just put all the elements together. Because I would say Linnea is more already in this... Because Linnea, like, on the documentary, when you see her early movies, she has more of a... I don't know what you would say, just just uh, like her early, very early role. She had more of like a just a regular kind of like hot girl body. Whereas like by the time you get to Sorority Babes, like she had really not only slimmed down, but really like toned up a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, this this more voluptuous whatever kind of representation on the cover. It's not
1: really representative of uh, like what Linnea looked like in the movie at all. Like, yeah, I think it's interesting that I think a lot of people only know Linnea or think of Linnea primarily from Return of the Living Dead, which makes sense. I'd say that's her most yeah. iconic role. But it's strange to me that I don't know if you had this too, where when I revisit Return of the Living Dead now, which I, I do a lot. I love it. Um, I, I don't know if like when I look at her in that, I don't really see Linnea Quigley as much. You know? Because right. like you said, she she doesn't like everything else with her she got that like really tone fit body. Um, not that she's not in shape in Return of the she of course is, but she yeah. just—I mean—there's the case too of the makeup and the shorter hair and everything. But yeah. it does—does it it does, she does not look at all in that filming? Like she does in almost everything else that she's in.
0: Oh, it's probably because she went into horror workout trip.
1: Oh yeah, well we can talk about that <laughs> briefly later too.
0: When you're curling those uh, those dismembered body <laughs> parts and you're doing jumping jacks with zombies next to you, <laughs> you really you're really gonna tone up quick but yeah so so basically you know it's like oh like they're doing the hazing of these girls and then all said they caught the nerds doing the peeping act uh you know whatever and uh so basically like babs lays down the challenge of like okay you peeping nerds like you know we won't call the cops or whatever if you go do something and also with the girls so like they basically give them the mission to go to a bowling alley and um retrieve a a particular bowling trophy. You know, just kind of just like a test of whatever scavenger hunt type of dare type situation, you know. And like now this is where the movie gets really intriguing to me, like w- what was the setup that like Babs like her dad owned the shopping mall or something?
1: Yeah, which I don't know like cuz it's they're still like breaking in. Yeah. So I don't understand like what the purpose is of even saying that. They just say like yeah, I basically it basically says that as a way to like calm her friends down, I think, mm-hmm. or, or to just give her the like, why she knows where the, um, like the video surveillance room is, maybe that's right. what they're building it. But uh, but yeah, her dad owns the. She's like the rich bitch, so her dad owns the mall that this bowling yeah. alley is at. That they said to send everybody to on a dare.
0: So so she actually herself doesn't have to break in. She actually has keys to the place. And I, mm-hmm. I like I don't know why. I just thought this was like a funny choice. Like according to her and the other like main sorority girls, like the two <laughs> other ones like go in. Like she has to like unlock the locks and everything, and she like she does the break in and unlocks the locks and everything while like holding a lit cigarette. Did you notice? that? <laughs> It's <laughs> like, talk about a, a change in, uh, I mean, now there's hardly any smoking in films, but even back then, like, not only was there smoking, but people would smoke during main activities to the plot. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so we basically long story short, she's she's checking in on the securities. Um, which, if you like, even watch the movie closely, it's so obvious that the shopping mall is in no way connected to the bowling alley, right? Oh yeah, yeah, of
1: course, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. So, they never they never have the shot that shows like the entrance to the bowling alley from the mall. In fact, they don't like the the group that breaks in just goes to like the regular bowling alley door. Right.
0: So. Which which uh, to say it too, like I always like. So, you know the title, Travis, sorority babes and the Slime ball ballarama. Like, like, what is the slam ball ballarama? Is it just that the bowling alley is supposed to be like shitty and run down? <laughs> you know what I mean?
1: Well, you know the story behind that title is this was actually made under the title The Imp for right, reasons right. we'll get to in a moment, and uh, and uh, they decided I think it was Charles Band decided that title's not catchy enough, and from right. what I understand at Charles Band's building and where everyone worked, they just had a contest where everybody threw out different names. And eventually this was just someone. I think, I would assume someone just kind of says as a joke, but knowing Charles Band, you know, they're just like, that's the one, that's what we'll run with.
0: Yeah. So anyway, like they break in and also with touche, uh, there's like uh, another character who's thrown in uh, is uh, a janitor. And this is the great buck oh, flower. Yeah. Who always played a homeless man, usually in movies. Now he's playing a janitor.
1: Boy, well, not much difference in his characterization, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he... He's either a drunk homeless guy or he's a drunk janitor. Um, I was like, really, like you, my first introduction to this movie was through Joe Bob uh, on the Shudder show too. Um, yeah. And I kind of then when I revisited for this, I totally forgot the buck flowers in it, and I was just excited. I was just excited to see him all over again. Um, and oh, he's yeah. great. He's a scene stealer in this too.
0: For real, like like you almost wish that he had. They had more scenes, but then again, the plot flies by so fast. It probably yeah. would have been harder to actually beef up his role.
1: Like I say, all three of these movies have some like genuinely funny humor in them. You know, obviously sometimes it's just funny because of what the movies are, but but I think some of his stuff in this is like actually genuinely good comedy with like yeah. how he, you know, especially when they have the scenes where he like is like mis uh misrepeating everything people are saying to him.
0: Yeah, and I gotta say, like, the first time I watched this, like, you know, the first maybe 30 minutes or so, like, the movie does, like, kind of show its low-budget roots once they do the more action scenes later, but early on, I was like, damn, man, like, I can't believe this isn't, like, you know, a bigger cult film, because, like, at first, it really was, like, to me, it felt like it was on the budget level of, like, a choppy mall or something at first. I was like, damn, they got some good locations. The mall was awesome. The bowling alley Mm -hmm. was pretty good. Like, yeah, and then, like... You know, like I'm really surprised. You know, I don't know what the the dollar amount of this budget was, but uh, I'm really surprised at everything they accomplished in it. Man, it was, it was
1: some good stuff. Well, Wikipedia has it listed as an estimated ninety thousand, which sounds doable. I'd say. Yeah. I guess,
0: especially in nineteen eighty seven dollars, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so basically, uh, they're looking for this bowling trophy, um calvin the rivers cuomo looking nerd he stumbles upon linnea quigley because like there's a funny bit where they're like oh how are we going to break in and it turns out the door's just open well it, depends, it turns out because the door the place has already been broken into by linnea quigley and she's a uh, very gingerly being very gentle with a cash register and a crowbar <laughs> <laughs> and uh i have to say like yeah like there's something about linnea like her i love her introduction scene in here and there's something uh, like there's a mode that she goes into with certain characters, not every character, but certain ones. And like I like I feel like um, what was her name in Return of the Living Dead? Trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like Spider and Trash are either sisters or cousins, because they kind of talk in the same way. Like, have you ever fantasized about being dead? <laughs> like,
1: you know what I mean? <laughs> that that voice that she puts on, she kind of talks to Calvin there's that and she does a thing in this too which i, I like in movies um in, in these kind of b movies where and i don't this is going to sound negative i don't mean it that way at all I, I think it's a positive where she kind of plays above the material a little bit like if you watch her as she, when in like group shots when uh, everyone's talking if you look at her she's kind of reacting to the dialogue and like how dumb it is yeah <laughs> and kind of rolling her eyes at the other characters and stuff and I, and you can play that here. here is just her character spider thinks all these people are stupid but it it kind of gets a nice like meta quality to it where you feel like she understands what this movie is and is kind of reacting to it.
0: Yeah, like like I, I love like how corny Calvin is, where he's like, Oh, if you need money, I can loan you a dollar and he she's like, Listen, dipshit, I'm robbing the fucking place. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I'd say from that in that first like entrance to her, like like her and Calvin already have a great you know, mm-hmm. uh, comedy, comedic rapport, you know, like totally uh, two different worlds. You have this cool, edgy, kind of like uh, borderline punk uh, criminal girl in this total, you know, Revenge of the Nerds type dweeb so it's like yeah it's like and it's funny too when the rest of the gang come in i want to say it's michelle bauer's like ooh, what's that like talking about Linnea, (laughs) like she's so (laughs) gross or something yeah so yeah so basically long story short like she's doing her thing they get to the bowling trophy and it knocks over and then like the smoke and everything comes out and then we get introduced to the imp and uh, like why don't you talk a little bit about the imp and describe him (laughs) trev
1: Well, the imp who uh, I see referred to, and I don't remember they say this in the movie, but uh, in like some of the press stuff you see is called Uncle Impy. Yeah. Um, he's a small little creature who is represented by um, a pretty cool little puppet that looks um, very much like the ghoulies, I'd say. Yeah. The ghoulies with like uh, elf ears is kind of yeah. the, the visual look of him. Um, and he's got a very interesting voice that I oh, don't yeah. think you expect to come out of uh, out of his mouth. He's, uh, I don't know how to even describe it, kind of a very deep um, voice. He's voiced by Dookie Flyswatter. Oh, yeah, Dookie. <laughs> Dookie Flyswatter, who, uh, you know, he's popped up in quite a few B-movies. He's a punk singer from, uh, from L.A. He's got a horror-punk band called Haunted Garage. Um, you know, he works with, like, Fred Olin Ray and Dakota quite a bit. And uh, he does the voice. And the Imp is your typical kind of, like, sarcastic, wisecracking horror movie villain in the vein of, like, a leprechaun yeah. uh, or a Chucky. And he basically tells the group, you know, that now that you've released me, uh, you get, to, you'll each get a wish. You know, that's that's the rules here. And they kind of even there's a little bit of where they kind of try to turn him down. He essentially says, no, you know, you basically have to have a wish. I'm going to give you a wish each. And uh, as you might expect from a movie, uh, if you've ever seen a movie about wishes, um, in fact, I th- I have an. Uh, you know a good accord that apparently patty jenkins saw this film and was inspired oh yeah she decided to write uh, wonder woman 84 uh this but this definitely follows uh monkey paw rules yeah Uh, so we start getting the the wishes and they all have uh disastrous consequences
0: yeah, probably what happened was her and her friends when she was in uh, middle school. They probably rented this from the video store, and she was like, "If mm-hmm. only oh, there's a way." I heard early cuts of it. Uh, that instead of the like the magic rock, they actually had like a CGI version of the imp in Wonder Woman eighty four. But when yep. they when they suddenly realized he had the voice of a nineteen seventies pimp, that <laughs> they, maybe that <laughs> wouldn't fly over so good with the general audience. Yeah, that
1: kind of, that is that basically is what Doogie Flystar is doing here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, we, when we get to uh, Nightmare Sisters, we'll really go down the rabbit hole of the Man of a Thousand Voices, Dookie Flyswatter. Mm-hmm. But um, I want to say too, there's like this weird, like it's in the early scenes. It's like the opening shot of the sorority house, and there's like two kind of nerdy guys walking by the camera. Like it's just an establishing shot, like out on the street. Mm-hmm. and like one of them like i noticed it cuz like they have like a little bit of dialogue you just hear this say something to the one guy like ooh and like i was like oh that voice sounds familiar and like i'm 99% sure it was Dookie that was walking through that uh that shot and, like so well, I, know,
1: I i know I, I believe one of them was um was uh the writer um uh, whose name I believe is, what is this, Sergei next or something? But I, mm-hmm. those two guys who walk by are definitely, like, people involved with in the production. Yeah. I know that from, from the commentary. I can't remember exactly who, but it might be the writer or it might be, like, the producer.
0: Yeah. So, like, yeah. So, but it's like basically, like, yeah, the wishes start out right away. And then uh, Hal Havens, uh, I think he's called Jimmy in the movie, he, like, instantly wishes to be rich, so he gets a pile of gold. Mm-hmm. And then the second wish, uh, if I'm not, if I'm remembering this, uh, like, doesn't Brink wish to be the prom queen?
1: She wishes to be a prom queen. I think even maybe before that is when the other, one of the nerdy guys, like the basically says, "Like, don't you wish that uh, Michelle Bauer's character was like in love with you?" Right, right. And he says yes, and it turns Michelle Bauer into a like basically oversexed. So she suddenly yeah. they just kind of all move out of frame, and she's suddenly standing there in her like sexy lingerie, and she right. becomes like a an oversexed infomaniac who just wants nothing but to but to bone this guy.
0: Yeah, like there's a real theme here. Um you know like they're all different but i think michelle bauer definitely has that more kind of pin-up quality to her and that's literally the line she was working before she really transitioned into, into uh, acting she was doing a lot of you know uh, playboy penthouse type modeling whatever mm-hmm. and like they they always like you know it's way more extreme obviously in nightmare sisters but they always take her from being an attractive person in these movies to like some kind of magic spell turns her into the hottest wanting to have the most sex
1: ever character yeah i mean none of these three are are shy about nudity by any means as we're going to see over this course of these films but i did notice that she is definitely the one who is usually given like the the token sex scenes in the movies and and as you just said is usually like the most seductive character
0: yeah and she's she's totally like game for it too and like i I think she you know she like and what's interesting even though like they're all kind of like similar setups to the characters i think the characters that she plays in this hollywood chainsaw hookers and nightmare sisters are all completely different and like Mm -hmm. that's the thing is like you you kind of in your mind you kind of lump all these movies together kind of but then when you watch them especially these particular three that we watched i was like i was actually really blown away by the range that all three actresses had you know what i mean oh yeah yeah so yeah so so like that wish kind of like kind of hits two birds with one stone because obviously michelle bowers transformed into a niff maniac so she doesn't really get a wish so she's basically just like raping this nerd in the locker room and uh, I've never seen a bowling alley. I was wondering if like they had to go to a different location for this or something. But like I've never seen a bowling alley where they have like full on showers and stuff. Yeah, Boy, that was that
1: was a different location.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then yeah, Brink becomes the prom queen. And I want to say, does that and nobody else really gets a wish right before they realize it's all bogus?
1: Yeah, I mean, but but we do get more complications right away because Uncle Impy realizes that they're also being watched yeah. by uh, by the. Uh, babs and her and her friends yeah. you know um and he kind of pulls them out of the the room um and he turns like the two friends turns one of them into just like a standard demon and then yeah. for some bizarre reason turns the other one into the bride of frankenstein which yeah. is never <laughs> explained but never okay, well, I'll, explained i'll run with it uh and they just kind of become you know his like his minions that are now chasing yeah. the rest of the group and, and trying to uh, kill them and then babs is basically um she never really aligns with the group but she is also uh stuck in there with, and trying to get away from the imp and, and everything that's happening.
0: Yeah and and like bab's uh they kind of set up too, that like all the doors of the shopping mall and and the and obviously the bowling alley probably too since they're all supposed to be connected even though we know they're, they're probably not. Like the the imp has also electrified all the exits and entrances so like they can't get out and bab's like gets kind of temporarily knocked out uh, when she tries to make a run for it. But, uh, yeah, and then it just kind of quickly, you know, the um, the slob guy realizes his gold is really just spray paint at wooden blocks. And then, like, uh, Brink, like, doesn't her really nice prom dress just also instantly turn into, like, all crappy, dirty old dress or whatever?
1: Yeah, it's just, like, all rags. and Yeah. Yeah.
0: So like at that point, like pretty much the two people who didn't make wishes, well Babs didn't, but she's like on the run, whatever. Uh, but stuck in the bowling alley is, is we have Calvin and Spider, and like they pretty much like yeah, like they pretty much realize like they got to get away from this. And um, I'm trying to remember like what is the first exact tack? Is is it is it the um, uh, is it uh, Brink runs out into the shopping mall and she gets chased around by the demon girls?
1: Well, I think like the first, like I, th- I think it's Hell Havens who is killed first, right?
0: Oh yeah, he is killed first. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. The minions like p- pull him apart basically, and and then yeah. bowl with his head, which of course was going to happen in this movie. So Ex-
0: exactly. Mm-hmm. And then everybody f- kind of freaks out and scatters, and then yeah, like Brink. It was like a little weird too, because like I want to say. I mean, not not that they really ever took any of, like, their quote-unquote star status into account when they made these movies, but wouldn't you say, like, in this movie, Brink is the one that kind of gets, like, the least screen time, kind of?
1: She does, yeah. Um, She's she's kind of... um, I don't want to say inconsequentialness, but because Linnea is clearly, like, the hero, and because Michelle gets the big sex scene, Brink is kind of the one you don't remember as much coming out of this.
0: Yeah. Which is weird,
1: because, like, I, I, I... yeah, part of me wonders, well, I guess we can talk about this after all three of them, like talk about each three kind of individually, but I bet Brink was like having a ball making it at least still because right. of the three, she seems to be the one just in general that was like loved this genre the most right. and just was like obsessed with horror, even as like a young girl. Um, she's kind of like a, you know, as I always talk talk about, about fake nerd girls, that is definitely not Brink Stevens. No. Brink Stevens is a very real nerd girl from, from very early on in her life. Uh, which
0: Yeah, when she was a kid, she shaved her eyebrows that look like Mr. Spock
1: yeah and there's some great pictures when she was a teenager she would actually go to like four Ackerman parties uh, doing Vampirella cosplay yeah which makes me think I, was, I saw her in, those, in that costume and then like she later did some other photo shoots as Vampirella and it's just like mind-boggling to me that when they finally made the Vampirella movie in the mid-90s the, the Wynorski film that they didn't ever think to use her
0: yeah that's weird like yeah. i mean, yeah i don't know the story behind that but that seems like well, a i know missed i know they wanted to
1: use i believe winorski like wanted to use julie strain which of course is the other obvious option right. and and then i think talissa soto was kind of like forced upon him and he's always said that's like his biggest problem with the movies he didn't think she was right and he wasn't happy about it but uh but yeah, yeah i think it should have been strain or or stevens for sure i think
0: talissa soto at at that point at least even is probably too big of a star to even do
1: that type of movie or should have, you know what i mean like like, well, her performance definitely suggests she thought
0: so. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's just, like, that... If you're making that type of movie, a Vampirella movie, like, you have a certain very niche audience, and I don't think... You know, unless, like, they were thinking the opposite of, like, oh, we'll get the biggest star we can and make it more mainstream. But, yeah, that mm-hmm. that is a weird choice. So, yeah, so, like... I'd say, like, the only time, like, the movie feels draggy a little bit is you constantly get these setups... Um, where Linnea, uh, Spider, and Calvin are just, like, they're always getting locked in, and, like, they always just sit down and kind of, like, wait it out. And, yeah. like, it kind of robs the movie of a little bit of energy doing those scenes. Even though they're great scenes and it's really the, the, the what do you say, the character development scenes. Like, I wish they kind of would have staged those a little different to have something more
1: urgent going on, you know? like the Yeah, one... you, want, you, you want more, like, activity from them for sure. I mean, it's, it's clear when you watch this movie, like, they were, and this is true of all these movies, I suppose, you can tell which moments the budget went into. Um, and then to, like, save money, you know, rather than have more action scenes, as you said, we get a lot of kind of exposition-driven dialogue scenes
0: right right and it's like and so like they kind of get you know take turns getting attacked by the minions um finally like i say like the next kind of like you know like like everybody else gets killed off one by one eventually the one nerd escapes uh michelle bauer and i thought this was weird too like michelle bauer like the nerd escapes like he's tired of just being raped over and over by her um, I mean they never actually technically have sex but it's just constantly this and I felt bad for Michelle Bauer the scene where she takes his shoe off and bites his like foot sock like I was
1: like Whoa. <laughs>
0: <No>. <laughs> put this sweaty guy's sock in your mouth
1: I mean according to the commentary that was just all her you don't have to feel bad for her because okay. that was just all her like that's she, that's what, just, she was game for it and she was just it, doing
0: yeah so, yeah, he gets attacked by the minions, and he gets kind of, like, it's kind of a cheapo special effect, but he kind of gets his face burned on the in the kitchen area of the bowling alley. Mm-hmm. So he gets off. So, like, really the majority of this movie is kind of, like, Spider and Calvin trying to survive, and then basically Babs is on her own, and eventually, like, they do catch up with Babs. Like, there's kind of, like, a cool combo moment where um, Babs, like, takes the one girl who's a minion and, like, throws her into the, like, through the bowling machine and uh calvin uh, i won't say spider actually does rolls a bowling ball and again like the budget shows a little bit because like i thought we were going to get like a great splatterhead effect when this happened trev but -hmm. it's just totally kind of happens off screen unfortunately yeah they they bowl the bowl down and hit her in the face but you never actually see it it's just kind of implied
1: and if you're wondering the sense of humor that this movie is w- working on the level of it uh the other girl who's named taffy uh she is pulled apart so that they can say it's a taffy pull yeah right right <laughs> and so yeah like i like that little scene though like the behind
0: the lanes of the bowling alley where where uh babs kind of you know gets confronted by the imp and mm-hmm. i say the imp is pretty good like unless there's a shot i'm forgetting he's really not like a fully mobile puppet he's basically a hand puppet wouldn't you say
1: oh yeah for sure yeah i don't think you ever see him like walking or anything they didn't yeah. even like sometimes you watch movies and they do like the separate like leg rig to just have on right. screen but right you no, don't even get that but <laughs> but one thing
0: i did want to give him credit for for only having a hand puppet like they do did you notice they did some really cool tricks where he kind of like leans into frame out of frame whatnot to make it seem like he's got some movement going on because mm-hmm. they could have just totally cheaped out and just did like he just pops into you know out of thin air into something or something but they're like no nah, he's he's kind of like on the move it's implied and like yeah this is where i feel like this is like i don't know how you what would you feel about this scene where like babs kind of wins she's kind of like yeah fuck you imp or whatever she says like you know she she we think they've they've killed the other minion girl and uh uh, our great empire says like, "Oh, it doesn't matter. she's dead. I'll just make you whatever and then he just instantly converts Babs into a you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I like that Babs gets turned into a villain because I think, like, she looks great when she becomes, like, the kind of, yeah. like, the evil punk and everything. But I do think to, this could kind of go back to what you were saying about the, the slow portion of the movie, is I I feel like you really want to see Babs and Spider interact more in this movie. Yeah. Because they kind of don't. And I think those two characters obviously would, like, not get along. And I think that would be, like, a good driving force through the middle of this movie if those two had to work together for a while. Yeah. Because, like, you know,
0: like... Like she, ne- Babs never made a wish. Well, I guess the the minion girls never made a wish either. But it just like I, in this particular moment, in particular for me, it's kind of just like ah, the game kind of feels rigged now. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I like I would have liked a better setup. Like I do like that Babs gets converted into being evil, but um, yeah, I just wish it would have happened in kind of a cooler way. But but that kind of leads to a great action scene where Spider and Babs fight and like. How would we describe Babs' new form? It's like almost like a kind of punkish leather dominatrix. What you say?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. Um, Definitely, definitely like dominatrix, like uh, leaning.
0: Yeah, and like I don't know what the deal was with Robin Rochelle. I don't know if she was like a no nudity type actress or what. But I mean, I thought she had the look to be a screen queen for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I hate talking about like negatively about anyone. And it's, it's yeah. super unfortunate, as we said, that unfortunately she actually took her own life uh, later on uh, yeah. from she had depression and stuff. But I also know that this fight scene between the two of them. Uh, apparently uh, she was kind of uh, drunk while filming the scene and got actually too rough with Linnea Quigley. And and Linnea Quigley didn't say anything because she's a professional, but after the fact went to the director and said, hey, just so you know, she was uh, really like roughing me up and I could kind of smell the the booze on her. So I think, unfortunately, I think even at this point, Rochelle had some, some demons that maybe got in the way of her career.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, I had just read... she had a drinking problem but i didn't really know like that was something that really spilled into like on the set type uh Mm -hmm. incidences but yeah like it's pretty cool and like we kind of get like a molotov cocktail thing here that they have going on i guess there was also earlier too there was like a weird thing where they're just trapped in like a stock room at the bowling alley and they just randomly find a handgun
1: what did you make of that (laughs) (laughs) yeah you think they could have just got that from like buck flowers or something there could be like a a better explanation or or i mean i was gonna say introduce a mall security guard but that would require paying another actor so
0: well i would totally have bought it if she just would have found it like under the cash register while she was robbing the place like i feel Mm -hmm. like you could have slipped it in then you know what i mean but yeah but yeah it, it was weird but yeah there's like kind of that cool fight uh between babs and spider and then, like, yeah, like, like they burn her up, whatever. And Good then, burn effect too. Yeah, and then basically Stuntman burn. Yeah, it, <laughs> like, what, what, what is it like? Just the like, all of a sudden they cut to the guy in the full burn costume type thing.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it's, it's. I mean, when I say stunt man, it's like it's yeah. definitely like Robin Rochelle turns into a man <laughs> and yeah, gets yeah. set on fire. But
0: it's kind of <laughs> like the end of Halloween too. Where Michael Myers all of a sudden has a much bulkier jumpsuit Mm -hmm. on when he he catches on fire, but yeah, like at this point, like we have, um, it's pretty late into the movie that we kind of get the expository backstory where Spider and Calvin bump into Buck Flowers, and uh, or Buck Flower, and like he explains that like you know there there was this guy. Who you know used to come to the bowling alley way back in the day, like I guess it was supposed to be like the fifties or sixties, and like he became a perfect bowler and he was awesome and you know, like me like it was basically I guess he had the power he had the wish from the imp or whatever, and like in order to cheat the imp, he had trapped him into the bowling trophy, so like we find out the imp has been sitting in this bowling trophy for like decades at the bowling alley, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny, too, where he's like, he, you know, Buck is like, and you you let him out? Why'd you let him out? It's just like, dude, that was, uh, I don't know how the hell that imp, because that thing fell like, what did you say, maybe three feet on the floor and completely <laughs> <Yeah>. bust open. <laughs> so, yeah. So, we come into, like, you know, basically the final showdown of the movie and, you know, there's there's a there's a great stunt where uh, Calvin's actually able to uh, get outside and get to the car and, and you know he's trying to get the the getaway car and the uh, spider's dealing with the imp and uh, unfortunately the minion is in the back seat and you know he's trying to drive the car he gets attacked he flips the car over it was an amazing car stunt like like I was blown away because I didn't think this movie had the budget to pull something like this off.
1: Yeah, and it's fun, like, again, listening to the commentary, like, being reminded of, like, the ingenuity of these directors, like Dakota and Fred Olin Ray, who were, you know, just becoming, like, pros and making these kind of low-budget movies and everything, and and hearing them talk about, like, when the, you know, they had to get a car, because obviously they're going to destroy whatever car they had. And the person going to get the car asking him, like, what do you want? And him just saying, I don't know, just, like, make sure it's a white car because since we're filming mostly at night, uh, it'll, like, it'll show off better. And, like, we don't have many lights to work with. And just, like, that thought just tells you, like, oh, that's an indie filmmaker right there, you know?
0: And, you know, a lot of times it would be because the car would get destroyed or something. But I kind of miss, like, old... Not just genre movies, but just old lower budget movies in general. It could be anything—a comedy or anything where just everybody drove old, cra- crappy cars. I kind of hate when I watch movies now. It kind of like m- makes it feel fake to me. Like if you notice movies, TV shows now, Trev, everybody has a car that looks like it was like, you know, they bought it in the last three years, brand new. You know what I
1: mean? Yeah. Whenever I see a car in a movie, though, especially this era, that looks like the car here and just that general style of like that that boxy like yeah. kind of car. Long expect uh, yeah, I always expect it to suddenly turn into the famous trauma car crash because yeah. I just play I just always see in my head with that car.
0: Yeah. So like yeah, so basically what happens is while that's going on, and and I think the imp had his best line where he's like he's like he's like monster in the back seat. You fell for the oldest trick in the book. Ha ha. <laughs> Which, this is just a side note, because it kind of changes depending on what lighting is on him, but what color do you think the Imp is? Is he uh, is he gray or green or brown? Yeah, he
1: looks he looks gray. There's even a couple parts where he looks purple, which I think yeah. that's clearly just, just lighting. But yeah, he definitely, I, yeah, I couldn't tell if he was gray or green either.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I should say I have the 88 Films Edition, and they do like a reverse slipcover so you can make it be the Imp, but... It's not uh the artwork, but it's not that like mock up poster that was like really awesome that they did. It's just literally just you know they just did a screenshot of the imp from the movie and put them on the cover but uh but yeah, so Linnea what was it like an old tobacco can she gets them in or
1: uh maybe... yeah I believe so, that's what it looks like to me,
0: but it's really big, it kind of almost looks like a big cookie. Like...
1: It, or like it looks like a maybe like a it almost looks like it's gonna be like a jack in the box or something, yeah, it
0: does, so she basically just you know low budget she just like you know takes the lid off, puts it down on top of him, traps him in, and then basically like it kind of just hard cuts a little well, she goes outside and makes sure Calvin's okay, and she has the imp in the in the can, and you know he comes out of the car, he's okay, so like. And this is where I was really like, really?
1: After all that? <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, so so it. Tur- I'm assuming this is how she got to the bowling alley. She has like a little kind of rinky-dink dirt bike. It's almost like a moped, but it is a dirt bike. And she kind of tells Calvin to get on. And I think that, I like, like, I even had this like weird fake uh, uh, Sinbad Kazam memory, like fake memory of a movie, where like I thought that they went and threw the imp into like a dumpster. But no, like they just drive away on the dirt bike. You know, there's like the moment of like, calvin's like where are we gonna go she's like back to my place like you know she's like she's gonna break him off a piece or whatever and like kind of ride off with a happy ending because you know he's a nerd and he's -hmm. gonna get to be with this hot woman whatever but then like yeah they just leave the imp like on the corner in front of the bowling alley like the first people that would get there the cops the fire department the whoever rescue whatever somebody's gonna open that can right yeah, away
1: yeah where where they leave it and how it's sitting there there's that is there's no way that does not get opened later that day like yeah. you don't even like you don't even push it to the side or put it next to like a put it under a bush or something you just leave it on the sidewalk <laughs> like yeah. of course that's someone's gonna but i guess maybe they're just the, not our problem you know yeah because she's totally
0: like you know we got to get out of here somebody must have heard like you know all the noise the car crash or whatever so so we got to get out of here before the cops come but like i mean even if you just threw it in the woods that would at least buy you maybe a couple weeks a couple months before somebody found it and opened it but you're guaranteeing you this shit's going to get opened right
1: how do you away. think that was like laziness or do you think that was meant to be sequel bait you know every time i watch the movie i take
0: it as laziness Mm-hmm. Just because, like, they 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 you know they drive away and they want they like intentionally want to end the movie on focusing on the can and, and the imp being like, Come on, let me out now. Oh, it's so cramped in here. I'll be a good little imp. So, like, I feel like they really just did it out of convenience to get to that beat of the in comedy of
1: ending the movie on the imp's silly voice. But yeah, I mean, now do you know that in a non-COVID world, we would have a sequel to this movie right now? Really? Are you aware of this? I saw so, a listing so, for so a part a couple, two, but not. Yeah, so a couple a couple years ago, Full Moon started a project which I, you might have heard of called the Deadly Ten, yeah. where they were going to make ten new movies, um, make them very quick, very cheap, and the whole thing was that like if you're a part of their like subscription service or whatever, you could like kind of follow along with the production of the movies online, and then those people would get like first dibs to like the digital downloads of the film. Uh, and they made, I think, three of them, and then, like, they were supposed to do, like, two or three more last year, but, of course, COVID messed everything up, and I'm assuming they'll get back back going on them, because they've, you know, they've I believe they're funded and everything, and they, they already yeah. announced them all. But one of the ones that was supposed to be filmed last year was Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Ballorama 2, uh, co-directed by David Dakota and Brink-Stevens. And it's I think the subtitle is even the imp returns. So I, I assume it. I, I mean, I I assume it's still going to happen, but uh, but who knows when?
0: Do they have Dookie on board to do the voice?
1: I hope so. I, mean, yeah, I don't know I don't. how I
0: do it. I'm going to make a prediction uh, about Sorority Babes Two. Is I think there's going to be a second imp, a female imp, and there's going to be some imp love going on.
1: That's, oh boy, that would be my hot hand puppet on hand puppet action
0: exactly Mm -hmm. but yeah like like this movie blew me away the first time i watched it just really more the wildness the scope and scale like it like it's definitely a couple notches in budget below like great uh mall classics like uh you know uh, uh choppy mall or even like night of the comet or whatever but like I, I like the B movieish feel. I think it works for this movie. I I think there's like enough of a budget and a slickness in the filmmaking here to where it is a quote unquote real movie, but it also feels like a drive-in movie at the same time. If you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I think in, in that realm of like drive-in B movies, this is kind of like one of the ultimate examples, right? Like kind of everything you want from this kind of movie is here. You got the. The cheap monster you got the corny humor you have the exploitive nudity you've got the hot girls you've got the uh the nerds right every uh, you got an actual one big stunt you know you got a stunt man set on fire this this really like checks a lot of boxes in this realm yeah it's a crowd pleaser
0: yeah for sure and like i get i get yeah like we said it, it's hard to say which one is bigger this one or chainsaw hookers but I, I feel like this one at least when you watch it it has more of an epic
1: feeling and I'd say if you can, like you as you alluded to, um, check out the uh, the last drive-in version on on Shutter because you yeah, get like you know good. the movie and you get some some genuinely interesting cut-ins from from Joe Bob. And I That's don't know, sure. um, does your eight, so I have the, the full moon Blu-ray of this, yeah. um, which I believe is still readily available. Does the eighty-eight Films Blu-ray also have um, the because this has a feature-length making of that is actually longer than the movie? Yeah, on the, on the full moon one.
0: Yeah, it does have that. Like, I think it even has the same menu as the full moon because even though the because like, I have the full moon of Chainsaw Hookers, and that menu mm-hmm. looks exactly like the eighty eight films of this. But like, yeah, it does because like I don't know what happened. Like when I was playing it uh, last night, I started to watch a little bit of it, and it um, it, like like it seemed like it had like commentary over the documentary. It was weird. I don't know if just my player was messing up or what. But yeah, because because he can't because I checked the the runtime of it and it was like mm-hmm. way longer than the movie because i thought i was just turning on the commentary because like i said the menu is a little janky but no mm-hmm. it was like it started out and it was like i checked the runtime it was i believe two hours and 16 minutes and i think yeah, the movie is only like 84 minutes
1: so yeah it's yeah on it's there. called tales from the bowling alley it's funny because the, the the case listed as a featurette but it's 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 right. very very long um, basically they just they movies. just had someone on the set at all times with the camera like filming everything yeah and yeah. it's i always think like those making ofs i love like the trauma making ofs and then stuff like this where these making ofs are so fascinating we get to watch like uh these low budget movies that are made in like a week you know to watch like the what the the talent it takes and just the ingenuity uh, i love those kind of stuff yeah because uh
0: uh dakota uh, he, like he kind of like introduces that the way that this documentary came out like all the behind the scenes footage was he had a he had a friend, who, to make a living, taught film at, like, a university all year. And then the summers, this guy would go out and, like, make a B-movie or make a documentary. And he came to the set of uh, Sorority Babes to kind of document everything with the intent. kind of like a Roy uh, Frunkus type thing where, like, he was mm-hmm. going to make it into a material to a, to show to his students about, hey, this is the way, like, a low-budget film set works, whatever. I was going to say, I kind of have, like, a Rick Dalton experience with uh david dakota like like rip his throat out (laughs) yeah rip his throat no like how rick dalton like he thought his name in the the movie the tv show was dakota and then the little girl's like it's it's dakota or whatever what how do you say his name because i've heard even on the documentary i've heard people call him david dakota dakota Dakota, like how what's the right way to say it
1: i could i mean i don't know for sure i've never met him i've always i've always said dakota but Dakota. uh, yeah yeah, yeah, that's what i always thought it was I'm shocked I haven't met him, uh, given yeah. all the you know the, the people in this like B movie realm that I have met. But.
0: Yeah. So you, you've been to some conventions. Have you
1: met any of the uh, three ladies that we're talking about today? I've met Lynnea quickly. Um, awesome. She's the she's the only one I've I've met. Uh, very nice. Uh, I didn't uh, I, I didn't get anything from her. I think that was one where like all my money had already uh, right. been used by the time I got to her table. But but chatted with her very briefly. Just told her I, I think at that time I was just like really like Return of Living Dead. You know, I should, she's heard three hundred times. You know, <laughs> three hundred times that, that day, morning. That day, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. But yeah, uh, she was nice. It was cool.
0: Nice. We're always nice yeah and like i don't know like you know i know the documentary you watched was a couple years older or whatever but like just seeing them three like like uh interviewed there's still something that's interesting to me about all three of them even now like their personalities you know i mean in all honesty it's like these movies were made they were like in their 20s possibly some of them were made when they were in their early 30s you know they were in the physical prime of their lives they were beautiful women and that was definitely let's not you know fool ourselves that was definitely okay their beauty was a component of uh you know what kind of helped these movies in the marketplace but like these are actually interesting people in all honesty
1: yeah that's the thing it's like it's easy to say and again we still have two more to talk about which will show us off even more uh, but it's easy to say like oh the scream queens they just have to be hot models right and that's where you know they some of them get their start. and that's you know as like you said that's where michelle bauer came from was modeling and brink stevens but there there's no shortage of hot women who want to be in movies in LA so the fact that these three worked this much and got this reputation and have documentaries about them and have cult followings now that's that goes beyond being hot yeah. that's like a that's a charisma on screen and that's like um you know a great interaction with the fans and just a passion for the genre and as you just said just seeming like interesting fun good people
0: yeah for sure so moving on to um the next one, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Mm-hmm. This one, now we're switching. Um, two out of these three were directed by Dave Dakota, but this one is actually from a different director who's a, kind of friends with him, Fred Olin Ray. Fred Olin Ray, like, like, I really, I've seen some of his movies. I know he's very notorious for making a lot of movies, making them cheap, making them quick. Like, I know in recent years there was a lot of discussions about one he made called Evil Tunes, which <laughs> was briefly. I like Evil Tunes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but it looks interesting. I want to see it. But yeah, like, like he, like, and I think, you know, maybe it's just because I sat down and watched all these over the course of a week and, you know, I was able to kind of, you know, watch them, you know, back to back almost. Like, I think, like, immediately you can tell he has a different directing style than David Dakota and do you mean that
1: in a good way or a bad way (laughs)
0: because no like like i would i would say like uh and i mean well i personally prefer dakota style but 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 i i feel like whereas like i feel like dakota is like more of like a roger corman-esque director i think I, i think of fred Olin ray as being almost more like a wild throw it all up there in the screen russ meyer type of director
1: yeah, that's actually a really good I, I think the the Meyer Corman analogy is strong because I think Dakota has more of a visual sense for sure. Yeah. I think Fred Olin Ray is very happy to just plop the camera down wherever it seems like it would make the most sense and film a wide master of a scene right. and not and then his work is done kind of. <laughs> yeah. But uh but I also think Fred Olin Ray has a clear, like very satirical sense of humor. Um I think like i, I I've enjoyed I, I've never watched a Fred Olin Ray movie and been bored. That's for sure. Right. You know? I think, and as, I, I suppose, and that's not true of Dakota, which we'll talk about this near the end of the episode. But yeah. so I think Fred Olin Ray is one of those kind of like wild man, uh, directors of, of B movies where you're not going to get like the best looking movie maybe, but right. it, it's just going to be so strange and weird that you're going to have a good time. And this movie is a perfect example of that.
0: Yeah. Like, I mean, I know like to the more mainstream viewer, they would probably, uh, categorize all these movies as campy. Um, but like, to me, I, I would say Fred Olin Ray, like he knows he, like he's intentionally riding a certain level of camp and he's like, he's cool with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
1: Fred Olin Ray seems like, I know like with these movies with, like there's this like Charles Band connection. This is probably because like Full Moon was more of like an LA thing, right? And Trauma is yeah. New York. But Fred Olin Ray seems like he might kind of fit in that Trauma world a little bit more than Dakota would. I
0: agree with that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, so so this one is just like a little more wild with the plot. Like I mean, we're basically just thrown right into it right away with this one. Wouldn't you say?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, this is like this is a very short movie, um, and it's uh, it's a, it, it, we're thrown right into it. It's actually a much more simple plot, oddly enough. Not that any of these are very complicated. Yeah. But uh, but this does a thing too that was really big at this time. I'm sure you remember this. Uh, even you know that you've been playing catch up on this era with some of these B movies but this like era of like the mid to late eighties had a really big obsession with like a return to like film noir. Yeah. Um, and like this kind of like, but also like always this kind of slightly tongue in cheek film noir, like a little bit meta about it. So our main character in this is a private detective named Jack Chandler, um, which right off the bat, like the name and he's played by Jay Richardson, which again, if you've watched all these, like, or a lot of these B movies of this era, Jay Richardson is a guy you're, you're going to recognize. Um, pops up in, in a lot of these especially a lot of like the freddle and ray uh kind of stuff around this time um and he's been hired to uh track down a uh, a teenage runaway in la uh and that's kind of just like the through line but but we see right off the bat i mean the very first scene is um what's this character's name laurie right
0: yeah let me the first thing we cheek see cheek. in the movie
1: is like yeah, the first thing we see in this movie is a character named Laurie, played by Don Wildsmith, who's already been like arrested and is basically telling the police. And she's basically being interviewed in limbo because right. this is a very cheap movie. <laughs> yeah. um, but she's telling the police about her her story about you know why she's there, and it, it's kind of set up to make us think this is just a standard like prostitute bust. And then when she starts talking about how she used a special like kind of you know sexual uh, device on the guy they ask what are you talking about and she's like here i'll show you and pulls out a chainsaw uh why they allowed a chainsaw to be in the interrogation room with her don't yeah. worry about it
0: <laughs> yeah. going completely wild
1: yeah, yeah. but that's our, our introduction They're like oh okay uh, so this is this is going to be a very a very crazy movie and then we move into the jack chandler stuff and we get that standard film noir voiceover but again pretty jokey with him you know where you have scenes like him that's a lot later scene where he's with his girlfriend and talking about how when he had to leave his girlfriend, his voiceover is telling us how sad she was and how she was begging him to stay, and then we're seeing the reality where she's just like bitching him out and throwing stuff at him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, cliched. But I, 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 what did you think of Jay Richardson in this as Jack Chandler? I mean, it's not like you can call it a great performance, but I think he's a fun character. And I. I no, no.
0: Guy. I just, I'll be honest with you. Like, I was kind of like, you know. Um, I had ordered a physical, cause this is, like, one of the ones, like, you, like as far as I could, like, I search everything. You can't even rent it right now. So I was, like, I tracked down, uh the, you know, the physical copy, and I was, like, waiting for it to get in their mail, and I watched the trailer on YouTube, and I was, like, holy shit, I think I'm going to be all about this movie. Like, I love the look of it and everything. And then when I sat down to watch it, like, the thing that, like, really sold it on to me is the uh is the like you said the the detective thing and like that was weird too because like i don't know if blade runner is what kicked that off but then like later trancers came and so you kind of mm-hmm. had like the sci-fi film noir but then just like the regular film noir came back because i remember they did a series of tv movies in the late 80s i think with stacy keach they brought mike hammer yeah, mike back hammer, yeah and plus obviously there was stuff that was kind of film noirish a little bit on tv yeah, like-
1: armand DeSante made a mike hammer tv movie too they did like did I the he? jury
0: again with him yeah wow yeah, like we had crime story and stuff. So I mean, it was really like you, like you're saying, it really did. You make remember? Do you
1: remember the video game Sam and Max with like the the dog that was like a cop, and he had like this the yeah. bunny sidekick?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, what was that a game for? Was that PC or what?
1: That was a that was a PC game. I that was yeah. like an early PC game I had, but that was just like this, where it's like that, like yeah, the the. the, the cliched voiceover noir stuff and and that world right people loved exploring that kind of world around this time
0: yeah i loved it and uh i think definitely you know um one of our favorite directors ryan johnson he probably wouldn't he probably would never got to make looper last jedi if he didn't uh because like i remember when when brick came out like people Mm -hmm. weren't like oh ryan johnson it was like oh film noir is back you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it is a genre that like seems like every 20 years it makes like a little kind of temporary comeback and people get excited about it and then they just kind of drop it you know
1: I I think it's always got it's like cult following I know like if you're into like film if you're into like um noir detective like stories like in the written sense there's been a publishing house for quite a while now called hard case crime Mm -hmm. that every month puts out like another book that's in that realm a lot of them like reprints of like classic or lost books from like the 30s through 50s but they also put out kind of some newer authors writing in that style still uh, Max Allen Collins is still writing new Mike Hammer books. So, I mean, it's it's still, it's it, I wouldn't say thriving, but I think it'll always have a, a fan base.
0: Yeah, Jay Richardson is Jack Chandler. It's pretty obvious, <laughs> the yeah. reference there, you know what I mean? But yep. no, like, I, I was all about it. And to be honest, like, n- not that I was, um you know, not that I wasn't excited to watch the movie anyway, because, like, you get Michelle Bauer, you know topless, hacking people with a chainsaw. Like, I'm all about that craziness. But, like, uh, but like, yeah, like, that level of, like, the film noir element, like, it honestly, like, it made the film, like, a whole new level of interest to me. Like, as opposed to if it was just, like, a generic, you know, male nerd college character or whoever it could be. You know what I mean?
1: Well, Rick, so I, th- I think one of the most interesting things you can do with film noir is always butt it up against another genre. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, – the movie um, Cast a Deadly Spell with Fred Ward.
0: No, we talked about that, but I still didn't. It's, yeah, uh, it's
1: actually it's on HBO Max. Yeah, it's
0: on the Max. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's literally in my watch list. But I'm just so yeah, definitely swamped. you're gonna love
1: it. So yeah. definitely check it out. But that's like taking like you know a film noir world and mixing it with like black magic. And here, you know, what starts is just a film noir. I mean, that's the thing is like it looks like it's just a film noir. Then you realize, okay, well, it's also about these women, these prostitutes who are killing people with a chainsaw. And that could that's enough, right? That's enough for a B movie. And then to take it to the next level and say, well, actually these women are involved with an Egyptian cult of right. people with worship chainsaws. Like now you're getting into, like this is what we're talking about the Fred Ray thing, right? This is just like yeah. hat on a hat, but in a good way, just keep taking it one step crazier every chance you get.
0: Yeah. And and I had never seen this. Cause like I said, I'd never remember ever. Like, it's not like I stared at this on the video shelf and just always decided not to rent it. I never saw this in a video store ever, but I knew about this. Like Really hardcore because the Lena Quigley thing in Fango. And I remember, like, there was quite a bit of excitement in the time, obviously, because you had a chainsaw movie with Gunnar Hansen in it. And I remember mm-hmm. that being, like, I remember the pictures very vividly in that issue of Fango. Still have it somewhere in a box somewhere. But, like, yeah, like, I remember that. And I remember, like, I always had the feeling that this movie was bigger budget than what it was because, like, in the magazines and shit, they only ever showed stuff from you know the set that they have the the egyptian like cult set you know what i mean so i Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be like a much bigger bigger budget affair than than it was but no it it totally it totally worked for me and like we kind of um you know like i would say this movie is like a little bit looser uh in its plot and story like you said it's just it's just really the the detective character figuring out what's going on and we kind of you know the 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 first 20 30 minutes or so we kind of bounce in between the murders and then there's a, a, a besides Michelle Bauer there's another woman in the cult that they show go kill another guy at his house
1: By the way, I want to briefly talk about her because we talk about like these women who would just do a couple movies and kind of vanish. And I I kind of looked into her and I think she's in maybe a couple other Fred Olen Ray movies. But uh, the the name of the actress is Esther Elise. Mm -hmm. And she plays Lisa, who, as you just said, she's the other featured like kind of she has the other feature kill scene in this. Um, I actually really liked her, too. I found her like really cute. Yeah, I did, Um, too. She reminded me a lot of um, actually like kind of like physically like in the face or anything of Dana DiLorenzo, who played Kelly on uh, Ash vs Evil Dead. Um, but yeah, I thought she was like really cute. and I was kind of watching this, thinking like, oh, that's a shame that she's not in more of these, just because her her brief presence in this is like I like her.
0: She was really good. Speaking of Dana Delorenzo, would, like, would somebody like at a production somewhere like let's make her the new Scream queen because I think yeah, she would 100%, do it
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. She is so like it, she's so into it, um, and I know she's still like she still really wants to play Kelly again and yeah. she's always like advocating for the show to come back and she just seems like such a fun person. But yeah, yeah, she would have like, she would have killed in this era.
0: Exactly. Yeah. But I want to talk about, um, Esther Elise's kill scene because, uh, he's credited as something else. IMDb doesn't have the fake name, but here we get Fox Harris as, as Hermie. Mm-hmm. And I, I, like, I got a kick out of this. Cause like, I always just know this guy is like the crazy, um, old, um, uh, scientist guy who's who's driving around in the the car and repo man which we just yeah, you, covered we just did that right yeah, yeah. yeah. and unfortunately i it's it sad to me because i was like oh yeah like I, like what else did fox harris do and sadly he died the year that this came out he died a couple of days after christmas 1988 mm-hmm. of uh lung cancer so like I'm not sure if this was his final movie but like yeah it's one of it's his It's not final... his
1: final movie he definitely had he had more stuff in the can cuz he has yeah. like uh looking at him now he had he had a few movies that came out in 89 and even in the 90s 90, still stuff yeah. come out yeah
0: Yeah but 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 he was great like I don't know a whole lot about his background to be honest but for the oddball character I mean obviously he was great in Repo Man and like he's he he's great and he's actually a good actor but like the oddball whatever like I you know, and like I didn't—I always thought the voice he put on in Repo Man was like a put upon voice, but he kind of uses it again here, and I love it. You know, maybe that was by request, or maybe that was just his thing. But like when he has the girl posing with the baseball bat, and she keeps swinging it closer and closer to him, and he's taking photos over, her, and he's like, "Why are you swinging so
1: close to me?" <laughs> I just love it. It's it's great. <laughs> And, and that uh, scene is, uh, is filmed in Fred Olin Ray's apartment, which is uh, it's a, a fun little detail that I know. And also it's like interesting to look at them to be reminded of, like, oh, these people who are making these movies were living in these like, little yeah. hole-in-the-wall apartments and stuff in L.A., right? But I love that he does the typical B-movie thing of his time where he's got some of his previous movies on VHS like, yes. displayed up on the mantle. On the mantle.
0: <laughs> like like the, this the, this guy in his 50s, uh, Fox Harris, is going to have a proudly display to everybody that comes to his house. is. Copy of creepazoids on the mantle, <laughs> yeah. Because uh, they they pulled that in choppy Mall too. Weinorisky, he's like he's like the scene where they hole up in the pizza parlor. I'm going to have all the posters to my, all my previous direct to video movies up on the wall for no reason. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, yeah, it makes yeah. it look
1: like it's like a Roger Corman pizzeria or something. Yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> Corman's Pizza.
1: <laughs> i I would eat there
0: though oh i would too but i but i guess we should say it's very similar to the the opening uh which we kind of glossed over but they're like michelle bauer in the opening has this awesome scene where she picks up this kind of like construction worker type guy and takes him back to uh, i think her place and uh yeah her place and she has a painting of elvis on the wall that she covers up before she chainsaws them and basically the chainsaw scenes is a uh, very low budget but i like it i love the aesthetic and the kind of feel of it is You basically get a close-up of the girl, topless or scantily clad, whatever they're wearing. And then, like, they're running the chainsaw, and then just somebody off-screen is, like, throwing
1: cups of blood onto them. Yeah, and body parts. (laughs) And and throwing rubber body body parts at them. You get, like, the good little gag, too, where, like, the hand comes up and grabs her breast, and then she pulls the hand, and it's just a a, kind of, like, cut-off arm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was great. That was
0: great. So, yeah, so those are kind of, like, the main chainsaw hooker scenes in the, the movie. And then, like, yeah, and then, like, we kind of, you know, the, our detective guy, he kind of gets captured, and then we find out Linnea, who's who's part of the cult, like, she's actually really not part of the cult, she's kind of, like, posing, because she's trying to find out what happened to her friend, and she thinks the cult was responsible and whatnot, and I have to say, this is this is what I was talking about, this is where the movie really, um, t- you know, took up a notch, because when you get Linnea together with Jay Richardson, like, I like that, like, weird chemistry they had, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they keep, like, it's kind of weird. Um, let me look at the description of this movie. But it's kind of weird. But they, you know, I mean, Lena Quigley was young when they did this movie, don't get me wrong. But uh, they describe her in the plot summary on Wikipedia It's like, the key, in the movie, too. Like, they act like she's, like, a teenage runaway. Did you notice that? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the, that's how she's listed. And that does make things, uh, again, problematic, but yeah. whatever. Like,
0: Whereas, know. like, if you just would have, like, I mean, not saying you have to state the character's age or anything, but... But, like, if he just would have had her be, quote-unquote, a young woman in the story, it wouldn't have mattered. You know what I mean?
1: I think he does ask her at one point in the movie, though, how old are you, doesn't he? I think she says yeah. 18. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, yeah, so they kind of have
0: something. And then this is where I thought it was, like, a little weird. Because I always thought the girlfriend character of the detective was kind of, like, unnecessary. I thought it was just, like, they just wanted to have her around his window dressing. But then there's, like, a, a cool kind of friendship, partnership in this case, you know, figuring this out thing that cut you in know, like a, a, a budding romance between the detective and Linnea. Uh and then like the the girlfriend shows up and sees what's going on and just like you know just pretty much just bitches at the guy when you <laughs> say mm-hmm. And it's like it's like I don't know. Like I felt I felt like I felt like we would have gotten to the story a lot cleaner, and we would have felt maybe the romantic sparks fly between uh, Jay Richardson and Linae Quigley a little bit better if we didn't have to have this girlfriend character
1: kind of you know because it kind of kind of just turns them to a sleaze ball. You know what I mean? But this is what you're going talking about earlier, and I I don't know. Hopefully nobody listens to this show would do this, but some people might hear this and roll their eyes at how we're talking about these these women. as like legit actresses but i think the proof is in the pudding here if you watch this movie right after sorority babes this is like a very different performance from linnea quigley oh
0: yeah
1: and a very different kind of character and even and michelle bauer too like she's very different in this like she's much more kind of over the top comedic in this than she i mean she's obviously still they're using her for a lot of nudity in this but but she's like much more uh she's different and linnea is very different so so yeah i like how they're getting to show off a lot of different sides of them And and i like you i like I like the little relationship between um, Linnea and Jay Richardson in this. Yeah. like what we,
0: else? yeah oh, Go ahead. It, it, no, it just really carried the movie till we get to, you know, the movie obviously is all about the finale, but their yeah, relationship. But before
1: we get to the finale, we should say we also have Dookie Flyswatter again.
0: Yeah, it's, we it's, we got to talk about place. Dookie Flyswatter. And, and this was kind of like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is we have um, Jay Richardson, like he he's figured it out enough. He knows what's going on. So he makes a, a date with Mercedes, who's played by Michelle Bauer. And uh, he knows he's going to become a victim, he, and they they agree to meet in this bar, where, which is where she kind of picks up a lot of her victims, and we get Dookie Flyswatter. <laughs> Dookie Flyswatter is the bartender. What was his name, Bartender Jake or something like that?
1: Uh, Yeah, Jake the Bartender. Yeah,
0: Jake the Bartender. And uh, he's kind of a dick in this, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, and I'm also I'm also not ashamed to admit that I laughed out loud the first time I watched this movie when um Chandler goes into the bar and it shows all the people at the bar, and one of them is just like a like a nine-year-old kid. Yeah. Smoking a drinking, cigarette smoking and just drinking a beer with everyone else. And they don't they never mention it's just like a little brief like a side kind of joke, and I yeah. I, I loved that.
0: Yeah. yeah, I loved it too. And it was awesome too, like when they order their drinks, like it's like it's within camera view. He doesn't even like go off camera. Dookie just goes behind the bar And he already has like two pre-poured drinks <laughs> Sitting there And then like yeah Michelle Bauer Comes in and like you know they go and they sit at a Table and I thought it was like a funny thing Cause like this is a scene where they're in the bar talking like i feel like it would have been just as fine and maybe even worked better if they just the bar would have been like relatively empty and they just would have sat in like a quiet corner and had a conversation but you know to try to make the movie not seem so cheap they kind of scatter a handful of extras around so like on the tables to the next them you just get like these bored what look like crew members just sitting around in the background (laughs) of the shots but yeah, but I really like that scene too cuz you know he he was really playing it like the 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 gumshoe detective and all that. But uh but yeah, like like we never thought, you know, but like Dookie swi- Flyswatter, he's he's all about he's all scattered throughout these three films for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly we could have we could have just actually had this be a Dookie Flyswatter show and it would have been the same three movies we would have been fine
0: yeah i've been i've been like uh you know wondering how to title this i think i'm just gonna go with dookie flyswatter retrospective <laughs> 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 but yeah so like basically yeah like we have it you know linnea and jay richardson they're going they're going to take down the thing and it's like this is where like it gets a little wonky here wouldn't you say when like How they figure out, like, she kind of knows where the lair is, but not really. And then, like, it kind of just turns into a gag how they find the place
1: yeah i mean the way it's kind of full of that kind of stuff right it's and it's that old school kind of uh, easy gag of uh, i don't know how we're gonna find it and then just instantly driving by a sign that says you know egyptian temple through here Dang and the fact that. that it's like written on a cardboard sign you know yeah uh and then like the idea of like and again this goes to like the, the budget of the film right i know like they filmed this entire movie and i can't remember the name of the, the studio but it was like some studio that a lot of these productions in la were using at the time and i remember jay by hearing jay talk about this in the I think it's in that documentary where he basically says, you know, like apartment set was one side of the studio and the temple was the other side. And they're just rushing back and forth. And it's even like when when they in, when they go into the temple for the first time, they're clearly walking through like what, like the entrance to like a, a warehouse. Right. Yeah. It's like crap just like laying yeah. all over the place and stuff. Yeah. They're in like Van Nuys
0: or City of Industry or just somewhere crappy with some warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so like they go in there and it's like pretty much you know what what you think would happen. It's like, it's like uh, they get they kind of get captured
1: and, and we haven't uh, talked about we should, probably should here we should talk about Gunnar Hansen as the master. Yeah, yeah he, runs the he, he's kind of like, for lack of a better term, he kind of just like
0: masturbates in the bushes while the girls are doing their killings. Like he's always he's not really like a shot caller as the head of the cult, and I'm sure this had to do with like they probably didn't have too many like uh, you know, days to film with him. 'Cause so it's not really like you get him sprinkled throughout the movie commanding that the girls go out and kill. It just when they do kill, there's like literally like a shot of him in the bushes nearby, like lurking and being menacing, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah. I mean he's clearly there because they eventually just want the shot of Gunnar Hansen holding a chainsaw and they right. want him on the cover to say, Hey, it's Gunnar Hansen in our chainsaw movie. Right. And I, I would say kind of underplays the role a little bit, but I, I don't know if you feel this way, go it was, it was kind of, I, I liked seeing him in this. I actually do like him in this, even though it's not like, yeah, you know, I would again, I wouldn't call it an incredible performance or anything. Yeah. But the thing I've always felt about Gunnar Hansen and it, I discovered this when I first got Texas chance Massacre back on Laserdisc back in the day and listened to the audio commentary, Gunnar Hansen just has such a soothing, pleasant voice yeah like there's just something about listening to him where you just you can just tell how actually and i've always heard this he's not one that unfortunately i was never able to meet and unfortunately he's passed now yeah but every story you hear about him was just like what a great gentle guy he was and i think that just comes across in his presence so it's interesting to see and know that he was leatherface and then to see him play like this this killer here but there's just something about his voice that i that i like i don't know i just say i I, i'm glad he's in this
0: no for sure and like uh like yeah i always heard like the best things about him um i kind of knew a guy uh who made a couple of low budget movies in the late 90s early 2000s and uh one of the movies he made the gunner hanser hansen in it and he just he just uh raved and raved about like mm-hmm. the experience he had you know working with gunner and how how just much of a nice guy he is and like i've read stories and um i remember somebody saying like they met him at like pretty much like a flea market doing type situation doing autographs and like he was just like the coolest guy and you know, would sign anything you want to sign, take pictures with you and stuff, and like, like, like I think he was kind of doing that like on his own as a way to like, you know, make some make some bucks. Like, really, even before the horror convention shit started, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I mean, it just, you know, and he had done some other movies. Like, uh, you ever see that mosquito movie he was in? <laughs>
1: oh yeah, yeah, I've seen mosquito. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I actually that that actually was one I could I did find on the uh, the sh- the shelf of the mom and pop. Uh, yeah, story. there was a
1: are you familiar with Chainsaw Sally at all? No, nah, like just the title but that's it. Yeah. So like Chainsaw Sally is kind of like I think the movies from like it's well the movies different from the early 2000s. Let me see if I can – 2004. Okay. Uh, Chainsaw Sally is a character. Um Jimmy O'Burrell is the writer and director and his his wife April Burrell plays Chainsaw Sally and they did like one movie and then they actually spun that off into uh, a Chainsaw Sally TV show that they were kind of doing on the web, and they did like two seasons of that, and then a special, and then they actually had signed a deal with L. Ray to do an animated series. Wow. Unfortunately, that never happened, and of course now L. Ray is going away, and I think they're tr- yeah. still trying to make a third season of the show. But uh, but anyways, the the original movie, uh, he Gunnar Hansen's in that as Chainsaw Sally's dad, which of course again, right, like if we're gonna make a, yeah. a movie about a character with a chainsaw killer, who can we have play the dad? And same general idea, let's bring him in. But he just seems. He seems to actually be enjoying being there. And then, again, I've heard on the commentary they talk about, like, how nice he was and, like, what a kind of father figure he became on the set in real life. So,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah, Good sure. guy. Yeah, and it's it's kind of funny. Like, I mean, he did do stuff, obviously, after Texas Chainsaw. Which, I mean, obviously, we should say like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is like this giant thing in the world, but it really wasn't when they made it. It was like almost like a student film type situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, yeah, he obviously did other stuff throughout the years, but like, yeah, I wish he could have like you know been he kind of could have cashed in a little more and like been in like some more prestigious projects because he was such like kind of a cool and enigmatic guy and like you know like like obviously you know maybe it's just that thing of like he, his most famous role was something where he wore a mask and whatever but like like just him as a person like i agree completely like even this movie in all honesty like you kind of like it's cool that he's there and it's like i know what you're saying like if you're gonna do it might as well get him but mm-hmm. like you kind of feel like he's wasted at the same time or at least i did when i watched it. yeah yeah like like you know honestly that's probably the only real negative I have about the movie. It's just kind of like yeah you kind of feel like eh it's kind of a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah like I don't really even know how to describe like the last final kind of bit of this well, they get, like so it, we get to like goes so nuts. They've
1: been, <laughs> they've been captured and they they tie up uh, Jack Chandler um, and they kind of like it's like, it's sincere they kind of like brainwash Linnea quickly into like rejoining the cult because then we get of course the famous. Um, Virgin Dance of the Dueling Double Chainsaws, where, uh, you know, if if, if you've seen pictures of Linnea on this, it's probably this sequence because they, you know, she's actually inside a tomb, which apparently this is the tomb from Vamp and it still has like Grace Jones's like face on it. Uh, but when they open the tomb, she's in there fully nude but kind of body painted. Yeah. In a way where I've, I've read about how they would sometimes show this movie on TV and like not realize she was naked right. and, not cro- and not crop and not crop us at all because you can kind of look at it like if it, probably especially in bad resolution, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, like oh, I want to say Fangoria showed pictures of her like that and I never realized it wasn't mm-hmm. some type of thing that she was wearing. Like it looked like some type of like
1: wrap around cloth thing. Yeah. But but I mean, thankfully, once you have the Blu ray, it's a little more. Yeah. Once
0: the Blu ray, you can see the nibble. Pulls everything, yeah, for sure. But like, I like, I have to say, like, uh, the 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 whatever you want to call it, body painting, like, it's really
1: well done. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to point out for a fun little detail for anyone who takes our advice and goes and watches this afterwards. Um, apparently, because of the the way the scene is shot. She had to start the chainsaws up while she was in the tomb, and of mm-hmm. course, you know, chainsaws produce smoke, yeah. and the smoke started to fill the tomb, and she started to get lightheaded. And you can notice that when they open the tomb and she steps out, she actually stumbles because she's right. kind of like uh, she was like losing, losing consciousness up. in there. Yikes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like, do you know really like what's up with the chainsaws in this movie? Like, are they I really like the, running? Are they bladeless? Like, what do they do? I was like looking at it. Doesn't it look like they are? They do have the blades. I was like kind of con- I was like kind of constantly. Surprised that they had the women actually swinging around what looked to me to be just fully running chainsaws I mean, maybe yeah. there is like some kind of trick to it But because you can often tell in movies especially low-budget movies when they remove the chain, right and they or they move the blade and like that it They always looked like fully like equipped on it to me in this one but
0: yeah yeah it was it was hard to tell like because it looked real but then it was
1: just like you just in your mind you're thinking it can't be right <laughs> like, you know good right? thing good thing we were talking about linea quickly getting in that shape and being toned because she has to yeah. swing two of these things around during this dance sequence
0: yeah chainsaws are even smaller chainsaws are you know that's why they kind of miniaturized them over the years it's like they're very hard to wield like even for mm-hmm. a man you know but yeah, so like it gets a little wild here. There's kind of like a kind of like I picked up on this. There's kind of like the, like the other members of the cult, or maybe the the less experienced members of the cult. There's kind of like this like chorus of girls that are sitting there mesmerized watching this go on. Did you pick up on this? Like,
1: yeah, actually, I don't know if they, I don't know how much you looked into the trivia on this one, but the uh, the chorus of girls were apparently real prostitutes. Um, oh, or at least okay. they. Or at least they think they might have been, because uh, Fred and Ray, the way he tells the story, he, he just had some people, you know, some of the PA's like go out and rustle up women, and he says he believes that they just brought back like real uh, streetwalkers that they found on the on L.A. Uh, and brought them in. And these, and I, I think he t- talks, I, I can't remember like the details, but I think he just says the the basically the way they were presenting themselves on set is what led him to believe that. Yeah. Uh, so use your imagination, I suppose. But yeah,
0: they just stood out to me because like like you know, especially next to like you know, obviously you know, Linnea, Michelle, and whatever like they kind of st- stood out like a sore thumb to me because i was like oh they kind of seem like they they roped in some non-actors into the yeah, production they, they
1: have that like kind of i don't want to be again not trying to be mean but they have that look of maybe someone who's been leading a life on the streets of la for a while
0: yeah i just kind of thought they were like strippers or something that had no acting experience because they're kind of like and there's a the one girl it's kind of like i don't know if you would call it overreacting but just acting strange <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah so yeah so like I don't know, like, like what did you feel about the end? Kind of wrap up. Like, I was a, I mean, not that I expect a world out of these movies, but I was a little bit like, kind of underwhelmed. Like,
1: well, yeah, we we should just say so we eventually get like, you know, the the big, I guess, centerpiece of the finale is a chainsaw fight between Michelle Bauer and Linnea yeah. Quigley, which again is not, it's definitely not as exciting as maybe you know, like the. Nicholas Cage chainsaw fight no. Mandy, or even the Dennis Hopper versus Leatherface. But I mean, you're seeing two hot women, you know.
0: Yeah, it is what it is. chainsaws at
1: each other it is what it is. Um, I, the actual final scene that you're talking about the wrap up, yeah. I think was unnecessary. I think this is a movie that could have just went with like a hard cut at the end of like the actual yeah. temple stuff. I don't think we needed like the little postscript.
0: But yeah, I guess we should give them some credit. They did try to dress up the kind of production values because it wasn't under that lady that came out and, and like swallowed fire and spit it and all that.
1: Yeah, there's some, yeah, there's some, they're showing off some stuff. That's the kind of thing where like just bringing your friends to do whatever talents you know they have. (laughs) That's kind of how it felt. It was fun, but that's kind of how it felt.
0: But yeah, there's like the wrap up scene, and like, like I'm kind of blanking. Like, like the last part I remember is when Linnea kind of falls into his arms and they kind of like.
1: Well, but then we get the where it says, coming soon, student chainsaw nurses. Oh, all right, yeah. Which, which is uh, a flat-out lie. They never made that. But Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, if you knew
0: for sure. Was that a, just a gag, or were they like literally legit being like, oh, we could make this
1: if this does well? I mean, I assume it's a gag. In, in the in the documentary we keep referencing, Fred and Ray talks about how he would never do a sequel now because he feels like the reason people like the movie is because it's retro, and he thinks it would be silly to go back and try and revisit it, but I don't know if that means that at the time. He didn't want to do a sequel. Um, I mean, I would imagine, like most of the movies at this time, I would imagine this definitely made them money. So I don't know what would have prevented them from doing a second one if they wanted. But you also have to think, like, someone like Fred Allen Ray, he probably had 20 more movies to make over the next few months. So
0: yeah but yeah anyways. like like do you think um like with the sli- the sorority babes and the slime Bu and now Hollywood chainsaw hookers, these are some of the most you know the more outrageous titles of this time do you think that these titles like really uh you know kind of generated revenue like with rentals or more stores want to carry it because it's just oh like,
1: i guarantee they did yeah, yeah yeah i mean first of these movies I, I think both sorority babes and *Hollywood chainsaw hookers were also sold to be showing on usa up all night yeah. and so you get revenue from that and then I'm, I'm guaranteeing these were these were videos that were doing well in, in video stores so I'm, I'm sure i mean i don't think anybody got rich off of these but no. i think these were definitely movies that were were consistently making money for the people who are involved
0: yeah i'm I'm like i'm sure they help pay the rent for a month or two that's how i always Mm -hmm. look at you know the even like the stars of these movies they probably made their rent for that month maybe half the rent for the next month off their participation oh yeah well yeah the
1: actors i'm sure making like nothing Um, but that's the thing is that's why when you look back when you look up these directors and these actresses you will see how many movies they make in a year and that's a part of it right Like, like that's that's what you had to do
0: yeah like 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 i was um I wouldn't even really need it to really be a chainsaw related type thing, but like yeah, like I was kind of like all about the duo of uh you know uh Jay Richardson and it quickly like i I would have loved to see like even if it wasn't like the direct sequel, just like something where like they were working a case together, you know what I mean like. Like, she could be the one who kind of does, like, the undercover work for him and, you know, kind of poses as different characters or whatever. And, like, he's whatever. Because I thought they were really good together, honestly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now, we should point out that Brink-Stevens is not in this one, no, and no. Uh, I actually wanted to read, uh, just because I thought this was funny, I jotted it down. Uh, on the audio commentary of Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl Ballarama, uh, Brink-Stevens talks about how she remembers when her two friends, Linnea and Michelle, were doing this movie. And I just wrote this quote down because I thought it was so funny, and it's indicative of this era and everything we're talking about with them. She said, um, she t- she's talking about why she didn't do this one, and she says, well, I can't do a movie called Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. My mom would kill me. So anyway, I was doing Slave Girls Beyond Infinity, <laughs> and I just loved. I just loved that like instant like, you yeah. know, not even realizing what she's just said, but I just thought that was so funny. That is funny. It
0: definitely like the movie definitely would have like been cool if she was in it, but I don't really know who she would have played other than yeah. I, f-
1: I feel like if she was there, she would have replaced Esther Elise. Yeah, that's the only thing yeah. I think
0: of. But then we wouldn't have the awesome Esther Elise. So mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, so the last the last movie we're going to talk about here, 1988, is Nightmare Sisters. And, yeah, and
1: I, we should say, I, I just to lead into that, to point out, so as you said, Fred and Ray and David Dakota were friends, um, and they were kind of like, you know, they would recommend actors to each other, kind of sharing, you know, crew and, and equipment, I believe. And we should point out, because this is important to the story, that Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers was made in just five days. They filmed it in five days. And apparently the story of Nightmare Sisters is that David Ducotto then bet Fred and Ray, I bet I could make a movie in four days. And that movie is Nightmare Sisters.
0: Yeah, and I got to say, besides that little part of it, there's like another story behind this was like, whatever company handled the distribution only made a really limited number of video cassettes. And then like, they went out of business. So like, unfortunately, this movie, and like, I thought, honestly, I thought this one was going to be like the dud out of the group, just because I never heard of it. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, like, I, and the reason I never heard it was it was like the the distributor just went out of business, and like it didn't really get it, like its just due the way the other films did. But I gotta say, Trev, like this one, and it was actually, I wish I would have done it this way, but because I thought this might be the dud or the lesser of whatever, I actually watched this one first, and this was mm-hmm. actually kind of my favorite. In all honesty, really, mm-hmm. cool. So it's like with this movie, you definitely get the feeling. That it is, you know, because, like, how you said, like, they are trying to make it quick. And then supposedly they also used, like, to shoot it, they used mostly leftover f- uh, film that they had from Sorority Babes and some other...
1: Yeah, short ends. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, then like, you know, they reused a lot of the same crew and the cast members. But, um yeah, like, this movie just had a charm to it that, like, right from the gen- beginning and, like, I don't know if it's because they were stretching for time or they just had a slightly different approach with it. But I love the idea. I think it's a brilliant idea. That, like, this is a total nerd movie. That not We weren't just going to have, like, and it is kind of a carbon copy of Sorority Babies. Like, you have three guys who are nerd guys, kind of like lesser known actors. They weren't as recognizable as the nerd guys in Slimeball. But um, you kind of have the three nerd guys. But then we also make our three screen queens complete nerds. Mm-hmm. So, like, the movie starts out is basically Bring Stevens is coming home. She's a complete nerd, glasses, like, you know, she's dressed just like one of the guys would be from Revenge of the Nerds, pretty much. Um, Linnea, I gotta say, I didn't recognize Linnea at first. And then she started talking. I'm like, shit, that's Linnea's voice. She kind of has, like, this frazzled, like, weird hair. And she and she and and they have, like, um, dentures on her. This is where she has buck teeth. Mm-hmm. And, like, <coughs> they didn't really look like cartoon like Elmer Fudd teeth, but they kind of like, like I just thought it was a girl with like buck teeth, honestly. And finally, she—I was like, oh shit, that's Elaine. And then Michelle Bauer comes in, and like, I guess technically she was
1: wearing a fat suit, but she didn't like look super super large to me. Just with her character, yeah. There's one outfit later where they pull it off a little bit better. The outfit uh-huh. she's wearing when the guys come over makes her look bigger because she's wearing it's like more kind of like mumuesque esque. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas the other one, she's just wearing like basically like a like what like a workout suit is. It seems like they've stuffed with stuff yeah yeah
0: so she's supposed to be like the the nerdy girl who's like um
1: overweight
0: overweight yeah and like i guess the kind of like whatever tying the theme whatever is like they make this a sorority right where everybody else is just out of town this weekend or something like that yep yeah But it's so
1: obviously like a smaller house and not a sorority house. Yeah, it's just some house that they had like a... That's the thing is like they had the short ends. They had like a a span of like four days. And this was actually a house that belonged to um, a friend of Dakota's who he was moving out of. And he said, hey, the house is going to be kind of like empty for the do you, for the, these four days before I move out. Do you want to make a movie here? And so that's that's kind of the backstory of this film. I mean, to, to go to what you just said and the fact that they play as nerds, I will say this isn't my favorite of the three, but I do think this is probably the best showcase for them as performers, right? Because oh, big time. You, you do get them playing these nerd characters. And I will say, like, again, like, roll your eyes all you want, but I think these are like genuinely good comedic performances from all three of them. And like, impressive in like in this level of film that you know there's an early scene where it's just the three of them again it's like just a master's you know one wide shot of the three of them on a couch talking and it's what like a five or six minute scene no yeah. cuts no um, cuts it's like, yeah it's no cuts they're
0: acting is good they not only do they not fuck up the lines but they're like genuinely funny genuinely funny like i was really into the scene because i guess we should say let's get back the real the cold open of the movie it's oh, let's yeah, yeah. let's be honest, it's a little <laughs> brutal. It's a little but brutal. But our, our boy's back. Yeah. <laughs> our boy, the man of a thousand voices, Dookie Fly He's he plays like a like a medium. He has a crystal ball. Like this lady comes because her husband is missing, feared dead, whatever. Well, actually they know he's dead. They just found a pile of ashes in in a in a whatever bed. And uh so Dookie Fly he does like the medium thing where he like he contacts a spirit. And it's 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 very odd, very strange this character that Dookie Flyswatter's playing here. the The only way I could uh, describe it is like I'm pretty sure like a young Hank Azaria ran at this movie the night before he went and did his audition for The Simpsons, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, or his uh, character in Mystery Men, yeah. Uh, yeah. Blue Raja. Yeah, yeah. So he's got the turban, and he's definitely doing that kind of voice.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah de- definitely. You This would not fly nowadays. No. So, so yeah, so basically, Dookie Flyswatter, you know, he's using the crystal ball. It turns out, like, he describes this scene of what happened to this lady's husband. It was a succubus uh, you know, a female demon that killed her husband turned him into ash. Uh, she, you know, he describes that you know she bit his penis and that made him f- turn into ash. And then like things go wrong, like he can't control the pro- You know, the 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 mystic forces that are going on, and in a very strange special effect, uh, Dookie Fly Flyswatter gets beheaded, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And by he- beheaded, we mean you can see his shoulders in the black turtleneck that he's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, it honestly, Trav, this effect would have worked if they wouldn't have had a, a light on in the background that yeah, would have showed the yeah, silhouette of his shoulder.
1: Yeah, it's overlit for yeah, sure. Yeah, because he, And again, I wonder, like, we're watching this on Blu-ray, like, right. maybe if you'd seen this on a bad VHS, you would have right, like, it's oh, right. not too bad, you know.
0: Because it's basically like the head floating on front of a black background, which where like, all you see is the head looks like it's floating, you know.
1: And, like I've seen other movies pull that trick off much better. Right, right.
0: So yeah, yeah. Dukey Do- Flyswatter with his, his 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 very convincing accent there. Uh, but I give the guy credit. He's he when he does his characters, whatever in these movies, he goes f- full force. He's over the top. He goes all the way with it. Mm-hmm. So basically, where that turns you know translates into our movie about the female nerds beating male nerds, is a. Uh, the uh, uh, bring Stevens like just did some junk shopping and somehow she uh bought for a couple bucks Dookie fly swatters a uh, crystal ball, so, and I'm I'm actually glad that the crystal ball like kind of like stayed out of the movie for a while, but like yeah basically the nerds uh, the male nerds I should say like they, like they get invited over to have a party with the female nerds and it's basically like nerd on nerd, and like the male nerds like they're a little stuck up because like we said like i mean i don't know like it, it like like the i found this like a little unbelievable Trev, that these male nerds were like sticking their nose up in the air like they're making fun of linnea's buck teeth and michelle bauer they call her a cow and all these sort of things like i think in real life these nerds would be happy to be with any girls don't you
1: Oh for sure, especially since these three, like you can only like nerd them up so much. They still right. look pretty cute, you know, and it's like yeah. they're they're definitely still catches, especially for these guys. So
0: Yeah, it's like oh, Brain Stevens has glasses on. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but 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 what I will say, what I will say to that is as ridiculous as it is trying to ugly up these three ladies, they commit 100% 100%, 100% full force to the characters where like you kind of mm-hmm. do believe that they 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 are like that nerdy, you know what I mean? Like it's not like it, it, it's not like movies now. where It's not like, you know, she's all that or whatever. Or Rachel Lee Cook puts her hair up in a bun and you're supposed to like, you
1: know what I mean? No. And this is the thing too. This is again, sometimes you can just tell in movies when the, when the performers are, are so happy to have these roles and they're just having so much fun. And I think it's like that. And I think you can tell the three of them are genuinely friends. Like it all just like kind of blesses together. Uh, or coalesces together, I should say. <laughs> that's yeah. the right word. But uh, coalesces together. And, and like, yeah, this is, that's why I say it's like a great showcase for the three of them is it's like, they, I don't think any of them were expecting to be asked to play characters like this and they're just living it up and, yeah. it, and you watch this and go like wow these three girls like they legit had comedic talent like that's the thing is we you know we'll, we'll talk in a minute again about like where they went after this but it is a shame that like Hollywood wasn't willing to use them in like bigger ways because I think you could have yeah. put them into mainstream comedies I think we see that oh here. yeah <laughs>
0: I mean, I think either three of them could have at least been in a poly Shore movie. You know
1: what I mean? <laughs> I think of, like, so Linnea quickly, I know, she went on to do, like, the Vice Academy movies, um, and she's like, you think of that, and I mean, it's, that's those are obviously, like, exploitation ripoffs of Police Academy, but why not just, why couldn't she just been in Police Academy? Like right. She's, they're, they're good enough for that level of film, for sure, and, and even beyond, probably.
0: But. Exactly. So, yeah, so kind of, like, the B-plot, too, is, like, while this nerd party's going on, there's, like, some frat bros, because these nerds are somehow trying to, like you said, get get in the fraternity, and, like, like they basically brag that they're going to these girls' party, and, like, so basically their frat bros are kind of, like, lurking nearby, looking through the windows, seeing what's going on, and basically what happens is when this movie gets really going is, you know, part of the party is they bring out the crystal ball, and they kind of unleash the demonic force... You know, the succubus force and like all f- all three of the nerdy girls are instantly transforming they're like three super hot like succubuses so like uh, you know michelle bauer is not quote-unquote fat anymore also too did you notice michelle bauer when she was playing fat like they had like uh like cotton balls or something stuffed in her cheeks
1: yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. the old trick yeah <laughs>
0: yeah and linea's you know denture teeth are gone and bring steven's pretty much you know her glasses are gone. Takes off her glasses. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I gotta say, like,
0: and, and this, this to me, uh, Trev, like, proves that this was actually good acting. I actually was pretty disappointed. I'm not gonna, I'll be honest. I was pretty disappointed when, um, when, when they weren't the nerd girls anymore. Cause I liked those characters. Like,
1: I wish there were. Although the the one who still gets to have some fun with it is Bring Stevens, which is nice because she was the one who was missing from the last movie, and we said was not used that well in the in the first one. This is kind of like her her moment to shine here in this one because she gets to do the nerdy performance, and then when she becomes like sexy, she gets to put on like another affectation where she plays like a sexy girl pretending to be a young girl to like role play with the guys. And she does that really well too. Like, like
0: the kind of like, uh, you know, kind of little girl dress with a big lollipop, which, which like, 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 yeah, like, like hers, I was kind of like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, um, her, her character still is like you said, is is still kind of a fun, interesting character. Whereas Linda and Michelle kind of just become like sexy, whatever demons, whatever. Yeah, she kind of gets to be that but i mean to to talk about again how times have changed like i don't think you could uh portray a you know like a whatever you want to call it a sexual fantasy figure as a little girl in a movie now
1: yeah maybe not i mean i'm sure that's you know it's still a thing i'm sure gets role played but uh, yeah, but yeah and yeah but she she like really goes for it and i think like her her that affectation she picks up is like really funny uh, Linnea Quigley does get another big highlight moment, though, where she gets to actually do a full musical number uh, yeah. where she performs the song Santa Monica Boulevard Boys. And it's interesting yeah. to know that that's actually a song from her actual punk band, The Skirts, uh, right. which, again, like, Linnea Quigley is a pretty cool person. And if you don't, if you need more proof, like, there's the fact that not only is she a scream queen, but she had a, an L.A. punk band. Exactly. So yeah, so so it's it's it's
0: kind of like they all break off with with their nerd guy that they're paired up with and like things get like interesting and seductive. But like, you know, the guys are like what I thought was interesting was the guys were kinda of just like at first are like oh, we know this is weird. We know this is wrong. We know this is like a supernatural thing that's going on, but let's just go with it. Cause these girls are hot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But then there's like a certain level where it starts getting like more out of control where these nerd guys really can't handle it. And like, they kind of like, Oh, we, we got to do something about this. We got to figure out how to, you know, turn them back. Cause this ain't right. And they kind of pull back, you know, they don't, They don't go the whole nine yards. They don't have sex with them or anything like
1: that. It is good. You don't expect a movie like Nightmare Sisters to have you asking deep philosophical questions. But you do find yourself wondering watching this. Like, would I... If I... If I knew there was like some dark magic here, but I had a nude Brink Stevens or Michelle Bauer inviting right. me into a bedroom, how do I react to that?
0: <laughs> exactly. And then this is where the the their like big bully frat bros come into play. Cause like they basically kidnap the nerds and lock them up in a shed and then they go into you know, like we're gonna have sex with these hot girls, you know what I mean? And then like that's when we really get into the uh, you know, which I thought was a nice little switcheroo that you don't really have to sacrifice any of your main male characters. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, so like, yeah, they kind of send in the frat bros and, and they go in, you know, being the big studs they are, and they all get killed. And like uh, we said, there's um, there's an interesting way, and we see it firsthand here is uh, is like basically like they get you naked. They all of a sudden out of nowhere they'll have these. Yeah, you know, sharp jagged demon teeth and they bite you in the penis and i quite i quite like didn't understand this trev but like when they bite you in the penis like you turn into ash
1: yeah like smoke rises and you and you just like evaporate i mean grant maybe that is i mean like i probably would would want to die and turn into ash at that point yeah. so who knows
0: yeah <laughs> yeah like i think out of these like these movies you know sorority babes it's like If you're going to die, you might as well, like, get raped to death by Michelle Bauer. And in this one, like, same thing. It's, you know, and that's where these movies are, like, I'd say somewhat linked is like they have, like, a little bit of similarity in terms of, like, when the women turn evil. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, well, on this one, it was even, like, the original title was Sorority Succubus Sisters, which yeah. I, I wish it actually still had, because not yeah, only is it here. a more memorable title, but that would, like, link it more to uh, Sorority Babes and the Slime ball Bullerama,
0: so. Exactly. So, yeah, like, like this movie just really, like I said, just really caught me off guard, and, like, like as a movie movie, it's definitely the cheapest and yeah, everything. Yeah, I mean, you can
1: tell it's just all in this one yeah. house, and it's, yeah. yeah.
0: But, but basically getting to see all three of the women play, like, basically dual roles you know what i mean and so like basically the way it wraps up is like once all the frat boat bros kind of get killed is the nerds like they call like uh how do they know this guy like i can't remember was it a phone book or like he's like a tv exorcist or something like one
1: that? of one of them knows him for some reason yeah. but i
0: can't remember why like why yeah so they call him <laughs> and we get introduced to this older character this exorcist guy and like uh let's see
1: should have been Buck should have been Buckflower. But, oh, uh, it should that you can't would have be another
0: Awesome. Like the yeah, Jim Culver as the exorcist. So it's just literally like almost a take on the exorcist. You know, he shows up in the kind of like almost like the priest guard type thing.
1: Although I'm not kinda of, right. kinda of looks
0: like Leslie Nielsen a little bit. Yeah. Like, like that type of part guy, you know, older yeah. guy. And like he pretty much does the exorcism on them like like it looks like it's going to go like whatever okay and then like you know it gets complicated cuz then
1: like the actual what would you say like the actual demon i guess comes out yeah it's like the, it's the succubus and it's basically just like a mannequin like a man like a like a mannequin with some like special effects makeup But i think it's actually from what i remember hearing i think it's a like a prop lipped over from another movie which would, would obviously happen a lot at this this point but uh it's like this like um it's kind of like a low budget version of the guy from the new Creep Show series, wouldn't you say? You know what it kind of looks like? It kind of looks like when um, Gina Davis and Beetlejuice like rots uh mm-hmm. like near the end when he like makes them like kind of you know actually shoot, like, appear as corpses that's what yeah. it looks like a little
0: bit yeah yeah and kind of like a sheet for clothing type thing a hood and whatever and it kind of like in like you know i was actually because like up until this point this movie's been fairly low budget i was actually kind of impressed by the mannequin and all honesty i was like oh i didn't kind of see this coming i thought this was just kind of you know and then, i mean definitely out of the three films I th- this one you know because it is the lowest budget it definitely does have like the most homemade feel to it but i feel like it still has a charm because it's still so well done with the actresses well that's and the anything. thing
1: this one is like on every level this one's like barely a movie and it's the cheapest one but then you compare this to like the kind of like cheapo homemade stuff that we were getting in the 2000s right. and around now right and this is like so much more entertaining yeah uh, and just like you said it has just so much more charm to it yeah and again, this is another one where the, this was this was good enough to where they were able to actually put this on on regular TV. Did you get a chance to watch the the regular TV version of this? No, I didn't. I did So the the Blu-ray has a version of this where because obviously there's many nude scenes, including one of the the longest like bathtub scenes yeah, you'll bathtub ever see in this kind scene. of movie. Where the yeah. Three of them are just washing each other in the bathtub for a very long time. But. Uh, but they, they wanted to show this on USA up all night which we've mentioned multiple times already in this episode and uh, what they had to do is they had to go back like I think a few months later when they sold this and they brought the three actresses back and they refilmed all their their nude scenes now in uh, you know with uh, with lingerie or bathing suits on. But it's funny because obviously they didn't have that house anymore so like whenever you cut to them it doesn't match uh, and it's like their hair is a little different it's different picture quality because uh, I think maybe those scenes were even done on video instead of film um it's it's a it's interesting to watch obviously it would not be anyone's preferred version to watch but i'm glad it's on the blu-ray just because it's pretty funny
0: yeah I, i had heard about that um maybe it was on the documentary where they said they had to go back and reshoot that scene do you know exactly like how much later they had to
1: do that was it like years later I don't know if it was years later. I think it might have been like six months to a year, I want to say. I don't know what the exact timeline is. I know the funniest example of it, though, is that during the the bathtub sequence, instead of being in the bathtub when they cut to them then, when when the guys are peering in the the little keyhole, Mm -hmm. it's the three of them in underwear uh, playing with balloons on a bed. That's right. Yeah, it was some kind of like bad thing but
0: uh yeah i was just curious like usa up all night because you take these movies that by themselves are all various lengths and then obviously you want to insert commercials in it to pad out the runtime but then like movies like this where like some stuff has to get cut out so much like like i wonder if some episodes of up all night had more commercials or like would like ronda just have to do longer segments for the ones that the movies that really got like chopped apart you know what i mean
1: well, I think what I, I remember too, I don't think USA Apple night had a certain, I don't think the movies had to fit into a certain amount of time either. I think it was no. just like, they would show more movies if they needed to or whatever, or it, it would just like end at random times. Yeah. Cause I was actually recently reading about USA, USA Apple night. Cause this watching these movies got me going down a rabbit hole of it and watching a bunch of clips of it on YouTube and stuff. And, uh, and i was reading about how like sometimes usa apple night would just end at like 6 in the morning and sometimes it would end earlier so i think it's just whatever whatever worked out once you once you did it there's that yeah. like that classic um a classic i should say but <laughs> there's that great like david spade joke from one of his stand up routines where he talked about watching movies like this on usa growing up and how it was always the same thing we we're watching a movie, and they're like three guys walking through a forest saying hey let's all go to that boob festival and then suddenly just a hard cut and then walking out of it saying that was a great boob festival <laughs> you know cuz you couldn't see it yeah i had again, heard you, of it you would watch some movies on USA Apple night and that was genuinely frustrating. And then you had the ones like this where the movie's still fun. And then the cool thing about that was then, then you would like see that you would be introduced to these films on USA Apple night. I saw a lot of horror movies for the first time on monster vision with a lot of the gore cut out. You'd still like the movie. And then you had to, then you get to track down the full version of it. Like that's right. another fun experience from, from my youth that is kind of gone now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean watching a movie. And like, for me it was like, cause I didn't really watch well i didn't have cable for a while but like just on regular tv they always watch the movies on sunday afternoon like the independent stations would would fill like a huge block they pretty much do like three movies in a row and so i always catch these movies i would be like oh that's really awesome whatever and then you like realize oh like it was probably cut to shit so then i would go rent them again yeah mm-hmm. yep yeah that was fun so yeah so basically they have the showdown and like you have a little bit of like the cartoon effects with the with the with the dummy and, um, you know, it's all kind of comic in a way, and it gets kind of put... Doesn't it doesn't get put back in the crystal ball. It does, yeah. Yeah. And then it's well, like... no,
1: Yeah, and then they smash the ball, yeah.
0: Right. And then it's funny, too, because, like, uh, I think it's, like, in the crystal ball in the backyard, and, like, they smash it or whatever they do, and then they just go right back to playing, like, Twister. That's pretty much how the movie ends.
1: Yeah, and then like, the ultimate, like again, the kind of thing that always happens in these kinds of AIDS movies is, like, the the girls are no longer possessed, but as, like, a reward for our girl yeah. guys, the girls still get to retain their and hard bodies, you know? Yeah. They don't go back to being, like, their previous nerdy selves.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, Brink was pretty much the same. She just wasn't, you know, wearing glasses and nerdy clothes, but, like, yeah, definitely Michelle Bauer gets to be thin, you know, permanently, and then uh, Linnea's teeth get fixed, so, like, I don't know, like, like, I mean, I guess it shouldn't surprise me, but I was a little taken back because here's where I thought it was going, Trev, was like, okay, the nerds, they got the hot versions of the girls for a little while, but they realized how dangerous it was. I thought they were, I thought the women were going to get turned back into their nerdy like look, but I thought, I thought like the kind of moral of the story was the guys, the nerd guys were going to just now accept them
1: for how they were and like them still. I think that's what you would do today. Yeah, but I think in the '80s, uh, people didn't care, and I think the, yeah. the mentality back then was like, no, no, no. Let's make sure they're still hot at the end. And the, so what you're saying
0: is, in the '80s people just wanted to jerk off, right? Yeah, for
1: <laughs> okay. sure. The '80s okay. is you know materialism ruled in the in the '80s. So
0: yeah, but I I don't know, man. Like I I don't know I don't know how or why to explain how much I liked them playing the three nerds, but I thought it was awesome. No, mm-hmm. um, i, I could have like i said i could have watched the whole i could just watched literally a movie called nerd party of them being nerds i thought it would have been funny like i got a blast out of it so yeah, yeah so nightmare sisters definitely uh, yeah, you know uh definitely was a highlight for me but i mean all three of these movies were so much fun to look back on you know especially to kind of watch them in a block like this you know
1: yeah i i think like it's these three together i think you could just make a night of it because they're all very short i mean they're none of of these are even 90 minutes they're all like around 75 to 80 minutes yeah um very quick watches really fun you as you said very different performances from all of them you know similarity similar themes but kind of different you know approaches and as we said just so indicative of an era i miss and like a special time in history uh for people, like, around our age, and I think people younger w- would find it just cool for, like, the retro aspect of it. The, yeah. Like, not, even if you didn't grow up with this stuff, just, you know, the movies like this don't exist anymore. You know, you still have – Troma's still cranking it out, I guess, and Full Moon's still going. But yeah. their output's not really exactly the same. Like, I guarantee when, when Sorority Babes 2 does happen, it's going to have a different feel to it than this than the original one. For right. For
0: sure. Yeah, and that's kind of, like, the downside Is is, you know – there there is this type of there's like people are trying to make this type of film but unfortunately it's not necessarily with the same resources or the same level of talent either behind or in front of the camera
1: Mm -hmm. or you're getting the typical thing where the people are making them right people grew up on these ones and they think like oh i'll try to make a bad movie and that's not really what these guys were doing fidel and ray and david dakota weren't trying to make bad movies; they were trying to make fun movies and that's like that's an important distinction they were making fun movies with limited resources, but then using those the resources to their advantage to come up with just crazy ideas and stuff. And that's, that's much different than being like, let's make a shitty movie on purpose. Well, I got to ask you that too,
0: Trev is, uh, with the whole recent, uh, whatever you want to call it, ironic filmmaking trend, making a shitty movie on purpose, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, obviously, you know, growing up in the eighties, I mean, like people know they've heard us like, like we enjoy even things as tame as Mr. Boogie. But, like, I feel like the new ones that, where they try to make these shitty exploitation movies, like, they're not, quote, unquote, hardcore enough. Like, they don't have the violence. They don't have the gore. They don't have the nudity. So it's like, like, if you're not kind of going to kind of go all the way with it, what's the point of even doing it? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's obviously exceptions to the rule. I think there's some, you know, there's always diamonds in the rough, and I think people like Astron Six in recent years, and and uh, you know, some other like like a movie like Turbo Kid. I think there's still ones that happen yeah. where people are going for it, and it, it turns out the right way. But I but I agree. I think it's I don't know. It's I don't I don't I don't want to say anyone shouldn't try to make so bad it's good movies because you know everything's valid. But I'm a little tired of it as like a comedic yeah. approach. I think um, I think you can you can try to make funny horror comedies that aren't where the jokes aren't all coming out of Haha, ha, we purposely put a boom mic in frame or something right like that's that's had its day instead just try to do what these movies were doing come up with ridiculous concepts and bizarre premises get like actual fun puppets and stuff and just make like a real movie yeah. and don't worry it'll still be cheesy and corny because of what you're working with but that's but it'll be better
0: yeah exactly it's just it's just like go for the more swing for the fences like mm-hmm. over the top approach. I agree yeah, with you, yeah
1: yeah aim high no matter what your budget. that's what these guys were doing so i get- i
0: guess I guess we should a good way to kind of wrap up the subscription is this uh documentary uh that um I can't remember. When did this come out? Like around 2011-ish? Something? 2011,
1: yeah. yeah. It's a documentary tw- that we've, we've been referencing a lot. It's called Screaming in High Heels, The Rise and Fall of the Scream Queen Era. And it's directed by Jason Paul Colum. Yeah, and it's kind of cool because really
0: even before you get to like the details of these three, because it is about these three particular ladies, but they kind of give you a nice overview with some of the directors and stuff of like recalling what it was like in the drive-in period really led to like a certain type of like B movie being made. And then like when video came, like kind of like they assert, and I'll be honest, I never really thought of it this way, but it makes a lot of sense in terms of like, you know, video stores kind of, you know, putting access to more movies, whatever. It, it kind of did take some of the, uh, steal some of the thunder of the drive-ins when you say,
1: well, it is true. Like, so this documentary—it's um, interesting because this is a very short documentary. It's just a little over an hour, and I remember being very apprehensive approaching it. Like, I even felt weird renting it for a few bucks. It's like yeah. this is only like an hour, and I felt like it had—it had a lot of potential to just feel like a DVD feature or fluff piece. I knew yeah. it was like a—it was like a Kickstarter documentary, right? So that's sometimes not a great sign. And it, it covers – So what you should say I think it's like a really good documentary. Like it covers it's, so yeah. much in the running time. Um, you get a lot of great info. And it did make me – and as you just said, I had never really thought about that before. But they make a good point about how like kind of every media form that comes along, unfortunately, like kind of kills the previous one. Like no – I mean I, obviously that's obvious. We all know that. But the way they describe how it happens and how you kind of lose something each time so that like that transition from drive into video store – and then video store to cable and then like cable to dvd and how they keep showing how it, the marketplace just keeps shifting in a, a smaller box like direction each time right and I, right. I, it's it's like sad but also it's kind of there's also still a weird level of nostalgia to it though just because we lived through that i don't know yeah. it was it was very interesting
0: yeah it was and then like they kind of you know set up some of the reasons and like like kind of like the business they kind of what I think makes the movie very worthwhile viewing and like we should say it is short 64 minutes but it you can rent it for only a dollar 99 on -hmm. amazon prime video and uh, like honestly like like I was just like well yeah it's probably two bucks because it's so short but it's so good like even if I would honestly even if I would have paid five bucks to watch it I think it would have been worth it because personally like for me it was like one of the most entertaining things I've watched in probably the last two or three weeks but like, yeah, they kind of give the background and like why these movies start getting made and how they start getting made. Uh, you know, because like the video market was booming. Like you sell these, you could put them on cable TV. You know, like they said, like you could cut out the nudity and like get them on something like USA. And it kind of, it kind of, like it kind of goes one by one. It gives the backgrounds of uh, Michelle Bauer and Linnea Quigley and Bring Stevens. And like it's interesting because they all they think, oh, okay, like these. You know actresses whatever ended up in these b movies they probably have similar stories but they all have like kind of like really three distinct paths into the business wouldn't you say
1: yeah and i and i have to give the documentary credit because i definitely learned things i didn't know like i never i never knew that brink stevens her professional name comes from that she was married to dave stevens the creator of the rocketeer i i was news to me um yeah, and, like, the backstory is interesting and then seeing where they are now. And there's even parts that are kind of – I found it actually kind of sad when Michelle Bauer talks about how in her everyday life she never tells anybody yeah. that she did this whole thing because, like, everyone assumes it's just softcore porn. And that, like, yeah. kind of really bummed me out hearing her say that. Yeah. And then just – and just, but then just seeing the, the different relationship that three of them have in more modern times with what they did, you know. And and they talk about the thing. We just talked about how, like, I think all three of them went through a period of not being sure about the term scream queen and then kind of reclaiming it later. Um, yeah yeah it's all good it's good stuff
0: yeah it's really good like i like i don't want to give too many of the details away because i actually really would highly encourage uh especially people like our listeners to, to give mm-hmm. this movie a rental um but like yeah like it, it's really good and uh and like yeah like it, it's kind of like that thing and like like and what's kind of cool is uh i mean unfortunately you know they weren't like classic movies like the ones we were talking about but like they did you know since this documentary was even made 10 years ago like they did come back and kind of reunite for a couple little projects here and there so
1: yeah, in particular, like uh, Dave Dakota has still been trying to like use them a lot, and uh, it's so Dave Dakota and Fred and Ray after these movies we talked about today obviously kept going for a long time, and they're they're big figures in the exploitation B movie world throughout the late '80s and '90s, and I will say the one thing that's impressive about them is how they both have adapted to all the changes in the market. So before we started recording, Goat and I were talking about how if, if you look at them now, um, both Fred and Ray and David Dakota are basically making mostly like Hallmark Christmas movies or yeah. Lifetime thrillers because that's kind of where that's kind of the modern version of exploitation cinema, and that's that is sad. Like, I think it's sad that these two directors who are making such wild movies in the, nine in the eighties uh, and nineties are now making these. But at least they're still working, and I know Dave yeah. Dakota in particular talks in documentary about how he's just happy if he's working. So I feel good for them. Um, but David Dakota, who um, who, who is gay, uh, he he kind of found this like new niche in the two thousands where he started making like a series of kind of like uh, gay themed slashers uh, exploitation films uh, called like the thirteen thirteen films. Which um, were kind of just like he would get a bunch of like handsome guys together and kind of aim for like exploitation of like, you know, men in a sense of having them run around in their underwear and stuff. And and he did a few of those where he, he reunited the three Scream Queens. I think there's actually one called Scream Queens and, and they're in it. And it's interesting because there's, there's a part of the documentary we've talked about too about how when you get older, kind of Hollywood doesn't want you the same way. Yeah. And there is like a weird, I don't know, there's almost like an academic paper to be written about the fact that the only way these three can still be presented as Scream Queens. Because, you know, they, you're not going to use them as like the young, sexy women anymore, is to put them in a movie aimed at a gay audience uh-huh. because a gay audience will just celebrate them as like the old, like cool queens they are. Right. And not yeah. worry about having to have to have them be sex symbols. And that's kind of sad. But I guess it's still nice that they're working together. And I don't know. I don't know. Hopefully more like, younger directors and stuff will start. Um, using them when they can, and and you know, kind of maybe they could enjoy that kind of Crampton esque uh, resurgence.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's just really silly, you know, honestly, like that whole notion of like you say, like basically, you know, not just these three women in particular, but just actors in general, whether it be men or women, having this silly notion of like basically having an expiration date. Like, I think you could, you know, easily uh, write a story about three women of whatever age going away to a cabin for a weekend getaway and you know mm-hmm. some horrific things happening and i mean like okay now like yeah you, like the point that there are with their lives and their careers like you're probably not going to do like a five minute bathtub scene with them <laughs> but but like we said like these women like they had a lot more to offer than just that and like in honesty like even in the, in the documentary just seeing them talk on camera like they captivate you they fascinate you you know like, just hearing about their normal everyday lives, so it's, like, I don't know, like, like if I had the money to, to afford all three of them to, like, really be in a movie and not be, like, just one-day cameras, but if I could really, like, have the money to, like, write a movie about all three of them, you know, incorporate them, like, I would do it, because I, I think it would actually be legitimately good, because I actually, I like, 100%, I think all three of them are, are good actresses, so, yeah, but... Yep. It is a little sad. But yeah, I, I I recommend every movie that we talked about today, including the documentary yeah. Highly. <laughs>
1: And I also recommend for the listeners, if you end up watching Screaming in High Heels, I, I highly recommend watching it with uh, a piece of paper and a pen in front of you because yeah. they show clips of tons of movies, including yeah. a bunch I'd never heard of. And that's the thing exactly. as I said, these women these women made so many movies, there were so many hours like, oh, I gotta track that down now. And I, I actually have sitting in front of me right now a list of about like I mean over twenty titles I wrote down from that documentary where I'm like, Whoop, I gotta find these. And and luckily we are in an era where you, you alluded to this earlier, but we're in an era where companies like um, Severin and Vinegar Syndrome yeah. and companies are, are starting to, like, track these movies down and, and put out nice Blu-rays. So, my I man we got a, – there's a good uh, – Nightmare Sisters has a Vinegar Syndrome Blue, wow. you know, as we said. You know, 88 Films, good. if you have a region-free player, you can get some of these. Uh, so hopefully more of these movies will get uh, – more of these little early Scream Queen stuff will, will get put out now.
0: Yeah, and, like, I mean, I would think, you know, like, like right right now where we're at is probably the sweet spot – for uh, these movies being re-released because you have people you know our age that we are at now who were you know grew up with these things and are willing to give these things a second or third look so yeah like like this is a really nice time even the documentary even though it was from 10 years ago i think it's fred Olin ray was talking about you know there's certain things that were considered not cool 20 years ago that people are into now and they're like kind of a cool hipster way and like it's like, yeah, this is kind of like
1: one of those things, you know? Yeah, I mean these these boutique labels are building their their name and their 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 whole like ethos off of that, right? The fact of like yeah. treating these movies that people just dismissed as trash back then as like undiscovered classics now, and and kind of like it's the the last remaining market of like physical media is just the collectors who are willing to right. uh, who love when a movie like <laughs> a movie like Nightmare Sisters is treated like something worth valuing and putting special features on and giving a nice transfer too, so
0: exactly so yeah, so i'm just like you after doing this you know like i thought i would um you know kind of have my fill so to speak after watching three films in a documentary in the last week but it, like it's kind of actually quite the opposite i'm kind of like you know i'm kind of on the hunt for uh, more of these titles and seeing where they're at and where i can catch them at you know what i mean mm-hmm. but yeah so i mean th- that was just a really uh really great experience sitting down to watch these and everything so definitely got to give credit to you trev for uh this was uh kind of like you know your 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 brainstorm here to do an episode on this and uh, i highly enjoyed it
1: yeah thank you
0: no thanks problem. for doing
1: it because I, I was definitely looking forward to it too i never need an excuse to sit down and watch these these nah, women but nah, uh nah, but nah, it was nah. nice to, to revisit it as i said now it's got me I uh, spent a lot. Like yesterday, I watched so much USA Up All Night on YouTube. So, uh, obviously, not the movies, but just like yeah. the Ronda Shear segments, which are fun in their own right for the same reason. Ronda Ron Sheer is very much like these women, right? Where she's just got this like fun, goofy personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, that, and just to look back at that era of TV, I mean, I mean you know, Joe Bob's still kicking, but I, I miss the horror hosts and everything. Exactly. And,
0: yeah. Yeah. I, I loved Ronda Shear so much as a kid, and, and I didn't get to watch her that much, but that was one of the things whenever I would stay over. Uh, at my uncle and aunt's house and stuff, like I would always stay up late at night in the basement watching, uh, like watching a lot of, uh, up all night.
1: Mm-hmm. And I remember like, being so nerdy of being like when they would do these special episodes every once in a while where Gilbert, Godfrey, and, and she were together and actually yeah. thinking that was like a big deal. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: <laughs> Meanwhile, these are just two people who, like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like the bare minimum of, uh, entertainment careers. But yeah, she was great. And I just like, she was like uh, it was kind of interesting because she was like a host but she was like a bombshell into her own right and like what I, mm-hmm. where I really liked her like that was the time and I'm sure you were the same way Trev like that was the time where like you probably thought Elvira was like the hottest woman in the world and then like Ronda I mean that's
1: that's never changed
0: yeah no yeah. Yeah, it's never changed <laughs> but then like kind of Ronda Shear came along like a little bit in the same vein but completely different like you mm-hmm. know she didn't have an Elvira stick. like Ronda Shear was Ronda Shear you know what I mean Yeah. so it was it was cool but yeah so listeners i know this is kind of a XL long episode but uh you know uh i, I hope this episode really attracts a lot of the fans of the screen queen genre and uh, i want to say thank you everybody for the last couple of months our downloads have been up um, almost at a high all-time high level so i really appreciate that and trev obviously i always appreciate you stopping by and um we need we need to really talk about uh, what's going on over at the uh, failure to franchise because you you guys have been coming in hot with some recent episodes.
1: Yeah, failure to franchise. My my show dedicated to uh, failed franchise starters, movies that were meant to start Hollywood franchises that never really took off. Uh, it's been going well. We we found a nice trajectory. We seem to be growing every episode. Um, and uh so I, I don't know exactly when this is dropping but in like the, the the weeks ahead we've got a lot of themed months coming up we're going to do like a month where we look at uh, two different king arthur movies um and uh, i guess i'll just drop it here because whatever uh leading into our, our big summer event uh mela junvovich where oh, throughout may awesome. may and june we're going to be looking at uh, failed franchise starters featuring mila jovovich so some, some, some good stuff coming up in the, the months ahead
0: yeah, we're like, I guess we it's okay to say that we're recording this in late, well, almost February, but really late January. But like, we yeah. Got a, yeah, we got a lot of episodes in the can, so this one should be dropping in March. So, okay, yeah, so so everybody get Prime. So, when you guys hear this, there will be, but I gotta say, like, I mean, all the episodes are great or, or failure to franchise, but my two favorite recently, I love Battleship. And uh, you guys kind of tore my heart out a little bit, but I highly enjoyed hearing you guys dissect Judge Dredd with Sylvester
1: Stallone. Mm-hmm. I know, because you're in that camp of you like that more than Dredd, yeah. right? Right, yeah. I, th- I think I think we talked in the episode, I think we were fair about why someone might, if you're not as attached to the yeah. comic. But uh, but yeah. I mean, I will say I bought Judge Dredd on DVD for that episode. I bought it at like a, a video store for a right. few bucks. And I'm it's actually one that I, I like having on my shelf, because I, I think I say in the episode that, i like quite a bit of it until a certain point i think it starts really well um i think production design wise it's great
0: but uh <sighs> dude dude I, w- I was all about it the the whole world building accent uh, you know uh, exam i can't talk it out but the whole world building of it and like i actually went out and like i have it somewhere in a box but i bought one of those like giant thick like making of art of judge dread books like mm-hmm. like not only did i see the movie but
1: i literally bought like a 25 dollar book <laughs> about the making of it you know what I mean like I think which, if you could take like the look of Judge Dread and transport it over onto the story and performances of Dread. You'd basically have like the movie everyone wants from that character.
0: Like like exactly like like I guess I'm a pretty big Sylvester Stallone fan but I don't count Judge Dread as being like one of his good characters. Mm-hmm. Um and like you know in like like I mean, I just I just love everything Diane Diane Lane does. Like I really don't even can th- I can't even think of a movie that Diane Lane was in that I thought she sucked. You know what I mean? Oh no. So yeah. like I love her Judge Hershey. I kind of love Armand Asante.
1: I do, Asante's pretty bad.
0: I I love the robot. I love the cannibals. Like you said, like I get why Judge Dredd purists wouldn't like it, but you know from a design standpoint and like yeah, like if 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 they would have dropped Carl Urban into the middle of the the stallone judge dread like universe like i would have loved it but it's just you know the the dread you know the carl urban one is good i like it i went to see it you know i I own the uh the the little 3d blu-ray everything but it's like yeah like if we could ever get a franchise of judge dread that like really had that whole built out world of it like the way the stallone did like i would be happy
1: now, i got to ask, because you said it's your other favorite episode. That one of, Chris and I don't often disagree, but one of our disagreements was Battleship. Uh, yeah. Where you fall in Battleship, because I quite like it, and Chris doesn't, wasn't very impressed with it. But how do you feel about it?
0: Well, I was dissing Battleship from the—this is how much I like. I was not about Battleship, Trev. So okay. like going back to the old Hillbilly DVD reviews day, it was one of the original uh, episodes of uh, uh, State of the Multiplex. And it was that month where I made fun of nothing but alien invasion movies coming out. Mm-hmm. So I was, like, totally fucked this movie. And then, like, when it was out, like, I was on vacation with, with my mom. We took a little trip up the coast, and, like, we wanted to see a movie. And I went to a theater, and there was, there was like, Men in Black 3, Battleship, and a couple other movies playing. And I was just, like, we just left. I was, like, I don't want to see any of these. So, like, I, like, literally on vacation passed up a chance to see Battleship, and I wish I never would have. Because, like, whatever it was, that Christmas or whenever it came out, like, my dad bought it for me just because it came out in a cool steel book. So I was like, whatever. Like, I have it now. Like, I'll watch it. I watch it. I probably watched Battleship, no kidding, like four or five times in the last whatever oh, okay. it's been. So you came years. around to my
1: side. So you're
0: with yeah, dude. Like, yeah. It, it does have that stink, which, which I'm a Peter Berg fan. And by the way, I, I, I just got to let it be known, Trev, you ripped my heart out, dude, when you totally, totally slapped to the side Peter Berg's The Kingdom. Like, oh, I love that uh, movie. No, yeah, I love no. that movie. <laughs> but uh, anyway, like, yeah, like... It does have the the terribleness in the shoehorned Rihanna, and then like you have yeah. Liam paycheck Liam Neeson <laughs> version and Brooklyn Deckler, mm-hmm. but like to me. I don't know. It was just because i the a fan of the video games or what, but but to me, Battleship is it's not even a Transformers rip-off, which it kinda is. To me, it's a Halo ripoff. So mm-hmm. you just have the military versus this like invading a alien bunch of master force. chiefs. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm all and not only that, but it, it has been a while since I watched it. Um, not too long, but maybe like five years since I watched Battleship. But when I listened to your guys' episode, I just actually just listened to it last week. I was a little behind. Like like yeah, I'm actually. I've been been watching a lot of stuff for episodes i've been recording a lot of episodes lately but kind of once i get through my backlog of stuff i'm watching for episodes uh podcast episodes i'm going to watch battleship really soon
1: right well then my work is done
0: here your work is done and then obviously what's going on uh, over in the neck of the woods of the x-men the days of future podcast
1: Days of Future Podcast has been been going well as well. Um, so, for the, so for the like people might, who listen regularly, to that my my X Men podcast might know that for a long time that show's been going for quite a while now. And for a long time, uh, my co-host Joe was kind of catching up on the X Men books. Um, but last year they did like a big relaunch of all the titles under John Jonathan Hickman and kind of are doing this new era of X Men books. And Joe just decided to kind of jump ahead and actually be current. So for the first time in a long time, uh, Joe and I are reading the current books. And that's allowed us to kind of have the newer episodes be more about what's actually going on right now. And there's there's some interesting stuff happening in the books, and we get to hit on that every once in a while. So we've talked about the, the recent giant crossover they did, Ten of Swords, and anytime a big new story drops. But other than that, we're just kind of waiting to hear that first, I assume soon we'll start to see that first X-Men MCU news trickling in. And we yeah. can go back to talking about the movie stuff uh, a little bit more because uh, right now, you know, obviously we we covered New Mutants and we're we're kind of just done with it for now. So we're kind of trying to fill in the gap by watching some older stuff. The Netflix uh, Netflix has put up the old X Men anime shows, and we've been uh, diving into those. And we might dive into some of the older crossovers from the comics. Uh, so yeah, just keep your keep your ears uh, out for when we finally get some MCU news.
0: Yeah, I have to say that ha- that has me a little bit nervous. Like I'm a little. I I feel like X-Men into the MCU just because the MCU is so mature at this point. Like, like I don't, I don't know how you can introduce the mutant concept when you've already gone so far in so many other directions. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: That's, that's the challenge that is in front of them. And I'm sure that's like, I'm, I'm hopefully it's a challenge they're taking seriously, but I'm sure it's one that's, they're finding frustrating as they're trying to figure it out. Uh, I think they have a benefit now with getting into the multiverse stuff to maybe use that to their advantage a little bit, but, uh, I don't envy them trying to figure that out because I agree that it's, it's going to be weird to just suddenly say like, Oh, and now there's mutants. Uh, you got to come up with something more clever than that. So
0: we'll see. And uh, maybe this is good news. Maybe this is news. You don't care about Trev, but I, I haven't, I haven't viewed the film yet in its entirety, but I have officially ended my Logan boycott. I, uh, I always had a desire to see the black and white version of the film. I didn't realize that version of the film was out of, out of print. So I paid quite very handsomely uh to uh you know we're talking above screen factory levels here to import uh, yeah to import a uh, i'll just say i paid 35 dollars to import a black (laughs) and white 4k copy of logan from the uk so
1: couldn't you just got the regular version and mess with the
0: contrast on your tv uh you know i've tried that and like I'm also a uh, proud owner of the what do you call it Fury Road Black and Chrome Edition.
1: Well, that's the thing. Like, i never, I never understand that because like it, those movies weren't filmed to be in black and white. Right. So ultimately, like, that's all they're doing, right? Is they're just like taking the contrast out. It's like well, I don't know. That's that's yeah. why I never care about those versions. But... Yeah, I mean, I mean, they 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 do
0: tweak it, but I gotta say, they do they do tweak it beyond more than just literally just turning off the color. Like it does, and it, like. I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 two, a, I'm a of fan two, of it, dude. I wish they did of, it with more movies, in all honesty.
1: Of the two, Logan makes more sense to me. Because at least yeah. Logan has like a noir sensibility to it. I don't understand wanting to see Fury Road in black and white at all. Like I don't understand seeing any Mad Max movie uh, in black and white. But whatever. Just not for me, I guess.
0: Yeah, dude. I am such a sucker. I bought Fury Road so many times. And as you know, like I'm not even that big of a fan of the movie. So I bought the 3D version, which was quite pricey. And then, like, I kept waiting for the, because, because they really milked it. Like, they released all the editions separately and stuff. And then, like, the black and chrome edition, I eventually had a full price. So, for my little combination of Fury Road editions, I probably paid 50 bucks. And now I had to pay 35 to get Logan from the UK and wait two months with no tracking, wondering if it ever showed up. Thankfully, it showed up. But I got to tell you, dude, like, I did some A and B comparisons between the 4k of the color version of logan and the black and white uh or as they call it the nor version of logan dude like the logan one like as much as i like the black and ro- white uh, fury road and I also enjoyed the black and white version of the mist like to me like it's just there's a starkness to it like it feels like it fits the movie so much better like the little scenes of like when he wakes up and they do like the shot of like the glass of water next so just like little shots like they seem so much more like important and like epic and stuff and like it to me at least and again i haven't seen the full movie so i don't know the full feel of the 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 whole storyline and stuff but for that stark western look they were kind of going for in logan like i think it looks so good like so i'll definitely you waiting,
1: go, you waiting for that black and white
0: noir blu-ray of carrot tops chairman of the board oh dude that would be so tight the the part where he like walks in and and like the board like they're all in like uproar and he has like the surfboard under his arm oh my god dude the fuck no, dude, I just love that like kind of gritty, pushed contrast black and white. Like another mm-hmm. movie that I thought was amazing visually was uh, Remember Nebraska a couple years ago
1: with Bruce. Oh yeah, 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 oh yeah. I just no, I love I, that look. I, I do, I do really. I mean, I'm glad more people are returning to it. I thought the lighthouse was beautiful. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, uh, or, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm not opposed to black and white. I just sometimes don't understand when they like you said when they do that post kind of right. black and white conversion. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it just, I don't know. It,
0: it, it makes it's you nice. feel
1: better. you said you're a sucker, but I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm about to plunk down a bunch of money again to buy Dawn of the Dead again. Oh, get yeah. That new Second Sight uh, set of it. And that's, you know, I bought the, the gigantic Elite uh, CAV laser disco oh. back in the day. And I bought the big, which I still have because I have that signed by Tom Savini. And then I have uh, that big uh, ultimate edition from Anchor Bay, which uh, you know I thought I would never have to replace, but now I find myself yeah. wanting to get the second sight one. So yeah, yeah,
0: I've 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 been existing all this time off the uh, the Anchor Bay big box set, and I had the original Blu Ray that came out, which I always thought looked nice, but yeah, like I will uh, I will plunk down for the the new whatever. Like like I didn't really go in on the previous version that they did. But, Mm -hmm. like, the more stripped-down version, like, yeah, it's at a more affordable price. So, yeah, I'll do it. So, yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty much it. This was an epic episode. I appreciate all you listeners for hanging in there with us. And, again, Trev, thank you for bringing the topic to the table.
1: Yeah, no problem. Now, for the first time in a while, we don't have anything planned. So Exactly. Got to figure something out. At
0: least we'll figure out what our next move is. But, anyway, everybody, thanks again for joining us. And we'll catch you here again real soon talking about more classic flicks and the movie Graveyard.